Good morning. Welcome to Wake Up Carolina. Tuesday morning, January 2nd, 843-2024-843-661-0937 is our number. Good morning, Josh. Good morning. Good morning, Rev. Good morning. Josh, what's up with the loud music in the uh, in the uh in the lobby this morning? Um but it's well, have as... a New Year's Eve party here <laughs> at the at the radio station? I wouldn't know. I wasn't here for it. Uh but someone had left the lobby audio potted up at max volume. So it was pretty loud. I noticed that when I came in too. That junk was rocking, man. Mm. I mean, it was, it was rocking. It was that Sunday morning crew that uses our studio, probably. Yeah. But the Sunday morning crew does a Sunday, Sunday school. Sunday school, right. Yeah. Well, they, I mean, that must have been in the re, <laughs> really evangelical and salvation. And, uh, or, or and, sometimes they don't know which, you know, they push the slider up and it's the, it's the wrong one. Well, they it, push it up. I mean, they sure did. Because as I said, that junk was rocking um, this morning when I walked into the door. Good morning, guys. Morning. I hope everybody yeah. had a good, um, a good Christmas and a happy, uh, a Merry Christmas and a happy new year. Yes. I certainly did. Batteries recharged, ready to, um, to get rolling. It's 2024. Um, you, you could, I mean, we, we could be so cliche and say, it's the most important year in American political history. Um, you know what year is the most important year in American political history this year? Yeah. I mean, whether year. it's last yeah. year, this year, the next, the next year. I don't know. This there, feels important. Well, I mean, it, and, and it is going to be, and we'll build that. I mean, we got 11 months to get to November. We've only got what, 14 days to get to, um, to the Iowa caucus. So there's a Crazy. lot of things that'll happen this year that are very consequential and, uh, and monumental. My, holidays were full majority college football i mean some nfl if you don't believe the nfl is a big deal college football plays these meaningless bowl game after bowl game after bowl game after bowl game until saturday night when the nfl says it's our turn sunday i mean you've got a you've got a drum beat of bowl games and after bowl games and some are are better than others and some have interested fan bases and others don't um some games as a college football fan in general i'm a little more curious about i wanted to watch liberty yesterday jamie chadwell you know formerly of um of coastal many people believe he will eventually coach in the in one of the power five um divisions i would argue probably uh deserves that shot at some point in time in his young coaching career but there's all these storylines that we pay attention to but as I kind of in the macro began digesting all of what happened, um, and you're talking about transfer portal, opt-outs. I mean, you know, Florida State went a certain way to build a certain kind of team. The one thing you don't get is a lot of buy-in. I mean, if right. they don't bleed, Seminole, you know, whatever that color is, um, you know, you kind of pluck a player here and you pluck a player from over there and you, you, you kind of transfer a player in from over here. You wonder how much they believe in the culture you know, uh, of the program. I think that situation kind of proved not a lot. Well, I mean, it's, it's just a bad situation yeah. all the way around. I it mean, is. I took a jab at, at some of the um some of the ACC folk by, but but it was unfair to Florida. So even Kirby Smart said somebody's got to fix this. I mean, somebody's got to get this better. But Rev, if you really begin thinking about it, and I put this on Twitter maybe the day before yesterday, why would we allow the people that built the model that failed miserably? to build a new model for college football. I mean, it was I'm all about you. control and money. That's right. I mean, it was not in the best interest of the game, the health and well-being of the game. Here's all this money coming in. How do we get all of it? I mean, how do we keep every single red, red center of that? I know a lot of people 
that are angry about the, the place college football finds itself. I don't know a lot of people that are angry at the players. I mean, I really don't. I think you've gone to the record and said, I don't like this. I mean, I don't like no. the way it is. I don't like the transfer portal. I don't like the, um, you know, the amount of leverage the kid has now. But It's, it's ruining it, but But, but I, but I don't it. blame the kid. No, I, mean, I really don't blame um, the player. They got hosed I, for long enough, Sure they did. In my opinion. Absolutely they did. And, um, and somebody's got to fix this, and somebody's got to figure out a better way. But if you think about the bowl games, name another sport that plays its exhibition games at the end of the season. <laughs> well, uh, true. I mean, I, I, was, I was thinking of it, and, and, and I'm a Gamecock fan. I certainly don't wish any ill on a Clemson player. Will Shipley has a chance to make money playing football one of these days. I would imagine he's making some money at, at Clemson, but I mean, he has a chance to make life-changing money one of these days as an NFL football player. Um, he hurts his you know knee in a, um, in a kickoff return in the Clemson-Kentucky game. I think the MRI came back negative, and I'm thankful it did. I mean, I certainly don't wish that on on a young kid, no matter what color jersey he wears. But you're thinking about, okay, you know, I, I, won't, I want my kids to show up. But you're playing exhibition games at the end of the season. When do Major League Baseball play exhibition games? Preseason. When does the NFL play exhibition games? Preseason. Sure. And, and again, you know, the NCAA fought the postseason model uh, the playoff model. Why? Because the bowl games generated enormous amounts of revenue. They had deals with Chamber of Commerces and and television networks. I've got a theory on the bowls. I don't think the bowls are complicated. I mean, if you want to get the kids to play in the bowl game, let the bowl game pay them. I mean, the Nokia Sugar yeah. Bowl, whatever. I don't know what it's named now. There's some corporate sponsor. There's somewhere. I mean, these corporations, if the corporation has enough money to sponsor the bowl game, they've got enough money to peel off a certain percentage and pay the kid. Uh, and Florida State doesn't have as many opt-outs. And we get a genuine understanding about how Florida State and, and Georgia, you know, I mean, I think Georgia's better, but but I don't think they're certainly not 60 points better than uh, than Florida State. But you get a chance to kind of sort through all of that. The, the, the point I want to make, and then I'll let it be, college football is broken, terribly and horribly broken. Why would you trust the people that broke it as badly as it's broken to be in the room when we try to build the new model moving forward. I don't. I mean, I don't. Because I don't believe that people who have invested so much in assuming and acquiring money and influence and control are going to give that away in a nanosecond. I mean, they just aren't. Now, now, do I believe the player went from having no leverage to too much leverage? Yes. I mean, I do. I think there there will be a place of equilibrium where, where the, um, the sport, the game, the fans, uh, the donors, the supporters – have a, a are getting a fair shake and the players getting a fair shake, but um, but the universities, I mean, the NCAA is comprised of member universities and institutions, and they're the ones that rake enormous amounts of money in, and and they did with that money what they chose to do uh, with that money. But I was thinking about how lousy does management have to be to play exhibition games at the end of the season and try to chastise the kids for not agreeing to play the exhibition games. <laughs> I mean, it's just, it, it, it's such a broken and flawed model. Now, will it be better next year with a 12-team playoff? That, that's a major step forward in the right direction. But the one thing that I'm most fearful of when it comes to college football is these yahoos who just, just you know, control the game for as long as they controlled it. And it was never about the student athlete. I mean, I think Mac Brown. Mac Brown's not Steve Spurrier. I mean, Mac Brown's not a bomb thrower. I mean, he's not one of these guys that says crazy 
things to, you know, not necessarily to get attention, but just to be saying crazy things. I don't think Spurry didn't get attention. I just think he was a bit more unfiltered than, than, than most people are. But Mac Brown said the NCAA's never cared about the student athlete. I tend to agree with that. I mean, I, I tend to believe that the NCAA has always been about control and money. And once they begin losing control of the money, they're trying to find a scapegoat, a villain, a bad guy, and they're trying to blame these kids for not being loyal to the program. Uh, I, I just, I don't buy that for a second. And I hope when we start building the new model, the, 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 the new model does not have the same people who built the old model in the, uh, in the room. 843-661-0937. I do want to do this before we go to our, to our call. And I'm going to ask Josh to help me at some point in time. Um, this morning, we're Wake Up Carolina. We broadcast out of the PD. Um, I was thinking about all-time sports heroes from our area, and we lost uh, one of our all-time sports heroes a couple of days ago. I think New Year's Eve is when uh, Kel Yarborough passed away. Um, as I said on my Facebook, took his last lap, um, New Year's Eve of 2023. Um, you know, I grew up in a, uh, in a very blue-collar setting, small town, no stoplight, uh, trucking and manufacturing and farming was kind of my life. Uh, and I wouldn't trade it for the world, but the biggest, the big, one of the highlights of our week, <laughs> some were interested in college football. I mean, rest assured the majority of the good old boys were interested in racing. I mean, it was NASCAR. Ken, you can have your football, get, get, you know, <laughs> don't, don't screw with that race. I mean, that race comes on Sunday and, um, and they would, they would always talk about, you know, uh, ball, ball, ball. I mean, he can't love that ball. He loves that ball, you know, but that, that racing is what they really and truly were a big fan, a big fan of. And I told the story, um, it was kind of a, um, the elite drivers, what I'd call the desired drivers. We had a race pool and everybody would, would put you in, I mean, at lunchtime on Friday, everybody got paid and, and a lot of good old boys would go to the bank, cash their check, or they'd go to the bank, deposit their check. But everybody had that crisp 10 spot, as we like to say. And at the 3 o'clock break on Friday afternoons, we had a race pool. And it was a ritual. I mean, it was a big deal. And in the early days, Reb, when I was much younger, it was David Pearson and Richard Petty and Cale Yarborough. And then along came Dale Earnhardt, Daryl Waltrip, Bill Elliott, Rusty Wallace, you know, the, the other generation of drivers they soon uh were kind of supplanted by jeff gordon and jimmy johnson and some of the other and we always had this debate because i would have been one of the co-managers of the race pool you know we we decided what 20 drivers got to stay in or not i pulled rank my dad owned the joint so i pulled some rank (laughs) at times and we would always argue about but there's no doubt earnhardt elliott and um and you know, Rusty Wallace is going to be in. I mean, there's Jeff Gordon and Jimmy John. No doubt. But how many of the old-timers get to stay in? It was kind of out of respect. And we would always argue about, well, Petty doesn't have any chance. I mean, he's too old, and he, he's running part of the schedule. We never took Kale out of a race pool until he retired. Why? Not, not because we thought he had a legitimate chance to win that race, but he was one of us. I mean, he's from Sardis, Timmonsville. I was from Pamplico. I mean, that would have been the PD region. And, um, and I just grew up pulling for Kale Yarborough because he was one of us and, and being a race fan, being around a bunch of race fans, it was sad. I mean, it was real sad. I want to tell a story later today, uh, a personal story I have that I'll never, ever, ever forget. I shared that on Facebook. Great story. But, but, but the comments were better than my story. I mean, the comments about, yeah, I used to see Kale doing this. And I remember one time I bought a car and I remember another, and it was so 
I don't know. It's just, it made me feel good. I mean, it made me smile. I know a family member who told me about, I think I told you six or eight months ago mm-hmm. that a certain person told me that he wasn't doing good. I said, what do you mean? He said, he's just not doing good. I mean, he's not getting older, just not doing good, not able to do for himself as he uh, always has done for himself. So as, um, as interested as I am and was and will be about college football and where it goes from here, I, I would be derelict as a good old PD country boy and not paying my proper respects to uh, one of our all-time great and legendary sports heroes from the good old PD region of South Carolina, um, Kale Yarborough. Let's go to the phone. No doubt about it. I second all that. Here's Verd Odom. Verd, first call of 2024. Good morning. You're on. Good morning, and uh, Happy New Year to all y'all. Hope y'all had a great holiday, and uh, yeah, we've got a lot of uh, interesting days ahead, Ken. Uh, like I said, 13 days before the Iowa caucus, and uh, 53 days before the all-important South Carolina, uh, February 24th uh, presidential primary. Uh, what I want to talk about this morning is encourage everybody, uh, the national program we have at the National Program Party is Banking Your Vote. And President Trump has become a fan of voting early and also absentee voting. Uh, South Carolina still predicted, I uh, looked at the thing just a few minutes ago, we're still predicted to have above normal rainfall and possibly uh, maybe below normal temperatures uh, for fe- January and February. Uh, February 24th, uh, uh, I've seen it snowing on March 25th before in South Carolina, in Marlboro County. So uh, we're subject to have some very inclement weather on February 24th when we had the presidential primary. And I would just like to encourage everybody through the PD and, and, and South Carolina to uh, uh, go ahead and uh, get ready to vote early. And I think it's nine to ten days of early voting uh, before the uh, February 24th primary. And also, uh, more important, go ahead and vote absentee. Uh, it's much easier for people that have disabilities, over 65, work conditions, uh, limit your time when you can vote on Election Day. And I, I'd like to encourage everybody to actually go ahead and request an absentee vote where you and your wife or your whoever in your family can uh, vote at your kitchen table, put it in the mail, and earn the new election integrity bill, as Governor McMaster said on May the uh, 15th, I think, of 2022. South Carolina becomes the easiest state in the nation to vote and the hardest to cheat because we limited the number of things that the ballot harvesters and the fraudsters can do. And the $5,000 fine, the five years in jail, and the felony charge against you, we have pretty much cleaned up the harvesters in South Carolina. But very important that we get out and vote. Very important that I think everybody should vote early, and they should vote by absentee in case we have a, a very bad weather on Election Day, February 24th. Thank you, Bert. Appreciate the update. Uh, new year update because it's, it's election on. year it's I mean, on right no doubt about it i mean it's all what we said hey it gets kind of quiet and shuts down a bit during the holidays but once we get back behind this mic in january i mean it's uh it's it's on and it is no question about it iowa caucus in a couple of weeks followed by the new hampshire primary nevada um caucus and then the south carolina primary all pretty uh one right after um the other i think the um the new hampshire primary is eight days after the Iowa caucus, and uh, we'll go through some numbers and data here in just a couple of minutes. Good to be back. Uh, we'll take a break. Our first break, love to hear from you and what you have on your mind, 843-661-0937. Back in a few. You know, we're talking about the the, the year 2024. I mean, obviously, it's we're, we're trying to get back in the groove. I mean, I didn't pay much attention, and I'm going to level with you. I mean, I do know that Donald Trump is still the front runner. On the Republican side, I do know that Joe Biden 
is still the president. I think I know he is president more than he knows <laughs> that he's actually uh, president. But but I I mean for about a week or so I just let it be. I mean I just felt that um I mean I knew we had uh, an abundance of politics to talk once we get back uh, on the airways and stories will evolve and adjust. But I do want to frame it right now. Um, here's the way, and it's not just the way I see it. I mean, look at some of the odds makers. It's kind of sort of the way they see it as well. And I'll round off here for argument's sake. As we sit here on the first work day of 2024, there's a 40% chance that Donald Trump is elected president of the United States in November of 2024. Now, I didn't say July 4th, the number will be the same. I don't have any idea what the future holds. Um, I mean, I can guess and anticipate and and make some predictions, but but in all honesty, that's all it would be. It would be total speculation. I don't have any idea where the economy goes from here. I mean, I do believe that the first two quarters of this year are, are going to be questionable. I mean, you know, what happens after that? I don't have any idea. I mean, I know the market had a big run up. That's historically the way markets do. I do believe there there's still leftover capital. Uh, by that, I mean the consumer, by and large, Jamie Dimon said September looks to me in some of the data tracking, it was November-ish when, when the consumer kind of started tapping out and putting things on revolving credit cards um, to maintain whatever quality of life they become accustomed to with some of the uh, macroeconomic stimulus. But but here's what happened, guys, and here's what we got to be careful about. What happened, a lot of the governments got enormous amounts of money, and the governments didn't spend all that money until recently, and that generated economic activity. It's government-induced, but it's still economic activity. So when the government says, hey, we're normally $40 million in, in, in cash reserves, we're $140 million, what, what, what's the best, what's the highest and best use of the $100 million dollars? Uh, build buildings, you know, build football, whatever, whatever they decide to do in whatever state they're they're living in. Well, that's economic activity. It's one-time expenditure, and I think it creates a false sense of of where the economy is. But but all things equal, today as we sit behind the microphone and begin to kind of look into the future, it is it, it appears to me, and and I can I can back that up. I mean, this can be validated with some of the um, odds makers out of London and some of the other places you're allowed to bet. Uh, I think there's some internet gaming, Rev. I don't know how they do it, but they figured out a way to kind of, you know, one of the loopholes and some of the gaming regulations and whatnot. But they're actually American odds now. Um, so a company like DraftKings, but they've gotten real creative on how to bet and wager. And um, and I've looked at some of their data. It's, a, it's about 4 in 10 that Trump wins in 2024. That's today. It's about 3 in 10 that Biden wins in 2024. It's about 3 in 10 that somebody not named Trump or Biden wins in 2024. How can that be? Well, I mean, there, there's still a chance that Trump is convicted on some of these charges. Um, I mean, the, the, I, I, I really believe, guys, and this is pretty dangerous of me to say, but so what? Let's hit the ground running. Um <laughs> I would love to see the Supreme Court take a pass. Really? I'd really okay, play, play that scenario. I mean, out. Let, let's light this candle. I mean, if this is I mean, if 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 blue state attorney generals and secretary of states are comfortable disallowing Trump voters in certain states 
to have the opportunity in America, not Venezuela, not Russia, not China, but in the good old U.S. of A., if the perennial frontrunner, who's got about, what, 60% of all the Republican voters, um, I'm, let's look at the poll right now, nationally, Trump, GOP, RCP, average, 62.5. So, so roughly two of every three Republican voters want to vote for Donald Trump. I mean, I know it's different in places. He's a lot more popular in Montana and Wyoming than he is in, in New Hampshire. In New Hampshire, he's at uh, the RCP, it's 46.3. But yeah, I mean, th- there's a little bit of me that says, okay, you want a damn insurrection? We'll give you an insurrection because that's what we would have. I mean, we would have a full-fledged January 6th would be, um, I mean, I don't want to use the Buford T. Justice reference now because it's too serious a matter. But, but there's a little bit of me. I know that's not best for America. But, but something tells me that we're going to have to have something drastic and dramatic happen for us to kind of turn this thing around and get ahead of it back in a, uh, in a positive direction. So, yes, there's a little bit of me that says Maine, Colorado, some of these other blue states that have toyed around with the idea. Um, let's do what Venezuela's done. Let's do what Russia and China have done. Let's tell the voters who they can vote for and who they can't. And, and the court takes a pass on it. I mean, the Supreme Court, if I was on the U.S. Supreme Court, I would be twisting arms today. And I'd say, look, let, let, let's let this play out. Let's see where the American people are in regards to voters in Maine, formerly Colorado. I think they finally put him back on. But anyway, we, we know their intent. I mean, their intent is to stop Donald Trump from getting elected president. If I know the numbers, they know the numbers better than I do. And when you look at the national polling, when you look at some of the RCB betting averages, there's about a 4 in 10 chance. Guess what, folks, in Pamplico? 40% is a better chance than 30%. 30% Biden, 30% somebody not named Trump or Biden, 40% today that Donald Trump wins uh, the nomination. I personally think it's better than that. I mean, I think the chances of Trump winning today now, now, a lot of things can happen. A lot of things will happen that could change the um the nature of where the selection is headed. But yes, I mean, th- th- there's a the 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 renegade slash cowboy slash gunslinger in me would love to see the court say, I mean, this is what you want. Let's do it. Or let's for, force the issue. Let's pick light, your side. Let's light the fuse, my man. I mean, let, let, let's not let's not be diplomatic. And let's not, not demonstrate resolve. Let's just say, okay, to these blue state attorney generals and secretary of states who believe they have ultimate authority, and these not been charged with insurrection, but their interpretation of um section what section three of the Fourteenth Amendment this is section five section five of the Fourteenth Amendment um that's their interpretation. So forget due process, forget forget equal protection in the law. I mean, let, let's you know. Let's exclude him from being allowed to be on the ballot, and let's watch what happens. Yes, you better believe. And you're in the business of talk radio, Josh. You're in the business of talk radio. It'd be good for business. Well, there's that. First profane word of the year. You ready? You can bet your sweet ass on that. (laughs) It'd be real good for talk radio. Take a break. Back in a few. 843-661-0937. Our number someone's on the phone. Let's go there. Roger in Pamplico. Good morning. Good morning, fellas. Uh, how are y'all? And uh want to say this. I think as rabid as Trump's fan base is, 
I think these folks are the Democrats on the other side are making a huge mistake politically because what happens if he's not on the ballot? And I think it's very possible he wins a write in, <laughs> you know, whether he's on the ballot or not. Uh, I think there's a very good possibility he wins a write in vote. So what happens then? That's interesting. Thank you, Roger. Appreciate it. And, um, sounds good. Roger sounds good. And, um, I knew that Roger and I grew up together. I knew he had a situation that he had to take care of. So, um, congratulations on taking care of that. You sound good, Roger. Um, there's, there, there's a couple of graphs and charts out there. And I watched Steve Kornacki, uh, the NBC guru, John King would be the, um, I mean, every network has one of these guys that stand by the oh, board. Yeah. I mean, they understand the analytics of the board and that's kind of what they've taken on the task of. And, uh, Kornacki does it on NBC in particular on MSNBC, and it might have been a day or two before the end of the year, they were handicapping the race, and they were talking about inflation, and they were talking about Biden's polling numbers, and then they went to Trump and DeSantis, and when DeSantis got in the race and Trump announced he's running for re-election, Trump was about 41-ish, 42-ish, DeSantis was at about 34, 35 and that's when you and I debated. I mean, is this best or not? I mean, what happens from here? I mean, we struggled. You know, I mean, Rev and I, I mean, we have a responsibility to engage in the listenership. And I mean, we don't tell you what to do. We don't don't try to tell you what to do. But we try to have with clarity what we believe and, and why we believe it. And sometimes I drag Rev kicking and screaming. And <laughs> sometimes he bounces things off me that I hadn't um, thought about. But I remember when it was 41-ish, 34, 35, I said, Rev, we're going to have a a race. I mean, you know, DeSantis has proven his medal. I mean, he's got some support of the America first movement. Um, he's executed governing. That's one thing that people complain about Trump. I mean, yeah, I like what he stands for. I like the nature of MAGA. I like the nature of America first, but I don't know that the guy concentrates or, or focuses tightly enough to advance an agenda. Um, you know, DeSantis seems to be more technocratic, I mean, he's kind of a um, a managing sort of personality, and we really uh, c- tried to understand where we thought this race was headed. And then Mar-a-Lago and the men with guns and the raid in the early mornings. And there's no doubt about it, guys. That was the moment that a lot of Republican voters said, he's my guy, and he's not. I mean, as much as I like DeSantis, I can't go there. They're making me go here. They're motivating me more than I can motivate myself. And the next thing you know, to get another indictment. And it's just bizarre to me. And maybe, I don't know, Rev, maybe these people don't understand the real world. You know, I offer up the theory um, that these, these elite universities have so insulated themselves from reality. And when you leave that elite university, you don't go to double A builders. You don't go to community broadcasters. You don't go to the, um, to the NASCAR race or the, or the Carolina Clemson football game, you go direct to CNN, you go directly to the state department or the DOJ and you have no understanding, you know, grasp. And, and it's almost like you've convinced yourself, okay, we are the masters of the universe. And if we indict, if we station men with guns outside of Mar-a-Lago, surely those nuts and wackos will stop, you know, being a supporter of, of Donald Trump. And all they've done is intensify that Trump. All they've done, the very people that are trying to stop Donald Trump from becoming president again are the very people who give him the best chance 
to get it, it's the weirdest phenomenon you could ever see and it's not just radio jargon it's not just a guy you know who's been off the air for a week and he's all energetic he's got a celsius and a, and a cup of coffee under his belt now he's trying to you know bring about and no it's just none of that the the, the data clearly shows that the day they raided Mar-a-Lago was the day that Trump became the force that he's never been before. Donald Trump has never been as formidable a political candidate as he is today. I mean, he's, he's, he's a once-elected president. We can debate what happened in 2020. Everybody has an opinion. But, but you know, he's one and one in certified election outcomes, uh, you know, about the presidency. You can't deny that he's never been in as be- in as good a shape in a primary and a general. Let's look at the um uh, Trump right now general election matchup. You ready? Uh, Trump forty six point two, Biden forty three point eight. That's the RCP average, um, and that doesn't even count the the right direction, wrong direction, the approve, disapprove. Biden's approvals at thirty nine. Seventy um, percent of Americans believe. That we're heading on the wrong track. Forty, he's underwater. Forty-six percent on direction of country. He's underwater about twenty percent on approval. I mean, he's in a bad, bad place, and and I think Trump wins some of that by default. You were talking about a um a dinner at the beach. Mm-hmm. You, where somebody texted me a second ago and said, "Okay, lay out what could happen um, to give Biden momentum and and cause Trump more more issues, inflation." But we're not, I mean, we're not in a, we're in a disinflationary period. We're not in a deflation, and we ain't going to deflation, guys. I mean, the, the, the $7 sub sandwich that is now $12, it ain't going back to 7 It's just not. We, we pump far too much liquidity into the economy to believe that normalcy will at some point in time um, come back. It's just not. This is the new normal. I mean, the, the $40 groceries is now $70. The two plates of fried seafood that Rev enjoyed New Year's <laughs> Eve uh, that you expect to pay 60 or 70 bucks for, it's 120 mm-hmm. I mean, if you get a little a bowl of soup, I think Rev said it. I mean, yeah. it's just, that's just where we are. And, uh, crazy. And when, but, but, I mean, when you increase, increase the M2 money supply from 15 to $22 trillion and you just um, you increase liquidity by $7 trillion in, what, a year? It takes a while for that to work itself out, and that's where we are. So are we in a, uh, a a stage of our economy where inflation is increasing at a slower rate? Yes, but we're not in a in a deflationary stage, we're, and we're not going to ever be in a deflationary stage. I mean, the housing may. We may see some used cars deflate in value. That's market forces supply and demand and finance charges and whatnot. But, um, I mean, you know, disinflation doesn't mean things are getting cheaper. Disinflation means things are getting more expensive at a slower rate and people are going to hang that around Biden's neck, whether it's his fault or not. I mean, I've heard the argument, well, Trump did a lot of this. Okay, Trump's not the president. I mean, you own the economy when you're the president, right? Didn't Carville say it's the economy stupid? Well, it's not the economy stupid when Republicans are in charge and not the economy stupid when Democrats are in charge. And I don't know where the Democrats, uh, I don't know what their angle can be. I don't know where you play your hand. I read an article over the weekend. I said I didn't pay any attention, but I actually did. I read an article over the weekend, and they tried to argue the magician and the illusionist. 
the, the magician tries to convince you that, that I, it's, it's truly magic. I mean, I did pull that rabbit out of the hat. The illusionist says, well, you know better than that. I mean, nobody <laughs> can pull a rabbit out of a hat unless you put a rabbit in there first. <laughs> right, but I made you think I did. But, but I made you think I did. So, so you know, the, um, the Democrats are in this illusionist stage. Um, I mean, Rev goes to the beach, buys two plates of seafood and two drinks, and he's like, that can't be that much. Well, I mean, that, that's not an illusion. That's reality. And there is no magic to put less on Rev's card or less on my card. I mean, it is what it is, and the Democrats are going to sink with it. I mean, I, I'm convinced of that. And, um, and you know, where do they go from here? I, I don't know. I mean, I don't have any idea. What If you're a Democrat in America today, I, I understand you hate Trump. I mean, I get that. He's a threat. He's a menace. He's a danger. I mean, he's, um, he's the, the only legitimate threat to democracy this century has seen. I understand if you're trying to play that hand, but, but I, I just don't, a threat to democracy, a bag of groceries, 70 bucks. People roll the dice on that threat to democracy if they believe there's a chance that $70 worth of groceries will eventually cost 50 bucks again. There's no way in Hades they trust Biden and the Democrats. I think they'll give Trump the benefit of the doubt and another shot to get the economy back at a place where normal people can enjoy the normal advantages and benefits. Take a break. Back in a few. 843-661-0937. First day of the new year. Back behind the mic. Someone's on the phone. Let's go there. Daphne and Dylan. Good morning. Good morning, guys. I'll try to get right to the point. I did a lot of research over the holiday concerning these lawsuits to keep Trump off the off the ballot. Found out that there's one guy that filed lawsuits in 20 different states, including South Carolina. His name is John Anthony Castro. He is a Texas tax attorney and supposedly a Republican who's a professional candidate and has run for many different offices and is now claiming he's running for president. Okay, in four states, Rhode Island, Arizona, New Hampshire, and Florida. His lawsuits were dismissed by two Democrat courts and two Republican courts as having no standing. Okay, here in South Carolina, this is going to be turned over to, has been turned over, excuse me, to a South Carolina U.S. District Judge, Mary Grieger Lewis, who was appointed by Barack Obama. Uh, and also, he tried to get a uh, South Carolina federal magistrate appointed by Barack Obama, uh, Ashiva Hodges, an Iranian naturalized citizen, to take it. But when she had made comments that he had no standing, uh, for some reason it got transferred to the U.S. District Judge. I, uh, I, I've done a lot of research on these things and that Act 62, but I won't go into Act 62 today. I'll do that another day. Thank you. Thank you, Daphne. Appreciate it. <laughs> Daphne always does the work. She worked over Necessary the, to yeah. better understand. Yes, yeah, some, the some of these lawsuits were instigated by Republicans. I mean, it would be the neocons. I mean, it would be the, the neoconservative movement within uh, the Republican Party. We'll see where it goes. And and I'm not saying the right thing to do in America is to for the Supreme Court to take a pass 
But I do wonder, I do wonder what the results or, or consequences would be if indeed um, that was the path uh, they chose. 843-661-0937 is our number. I think we finally have Evan Brown. We, we jammed up on the phone lines this morning. Evan, good morning. How are you, sir? Good morning. Good um, and a happy new year. Good to have you with us. Um, you're our first official guest of the uh, of the year 2024. Um, speaking of the first, the Iowa caucus is right around the corner. Um, officially less than a couple of weeks away. Um, they're expecting a record turnout. Um, what 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 do what is the news report of new voters and record turnouts in the uh, in the old infamous Iowa caucus, Eben? Well, that's a great question. When they say there's going to be record turnout, you know, I would say that 50 percent of the time they're right. (laughs) (laughs) I can relate. Yeah, I I think you're about right. (laughs) So, you know, here's the thing. There is obviously generated. uh, There's such a generated interest in in this uh, election. uh, And uh, therefore, uh, I suspect that turnout will be high. Will it be record? I mean, if it's one short of a record, is it, you know, try not to get bogged down in that. Uh, in that whole minutia of it. What I, I would suspect that you will have good turnout. You'll have great turnout. Uh, and turnout, of course, is extremely important uh, in the Iowa caucus. It's important in any election, as you would be aware. Uh, but uh, the Iowa caucuses require people to show up and be counted. This is not a situation or a type of election where uh, you get to come to a voting booth, click a thing, or tap a button, or, or bubble in a thing and, and have it scanned, and then you leave. You have to show up. You have to subject yourself to be persuaded by uh, campaign uh, um, representatives, uh, and you could be persuaded. You could have gone in looking to caucus for ca- candidate A, and then, you know, after getting 25 minutes of your ear chewed off, agree to a, a candidate B and, and walk to the other side of the room and huddle somewhere else and, and be counted that way. So it's a very unique uh, uh, type of contest. Uh, uh, the rest of the country really doesn't use it at all for anything. Um, but uh, uh, but turnout is key. Turnout at each of those district uh, caucus sites is, is key to be able to do well uh, in the Iowa caucuses. Now, doing well doesn't necessarily mean winning. Uh, a second-place winner at the Iowa caucus still can walk away with a couple convention delegates, and that's enough to uh, uh, convince donors, especially the big ones, to keep giving you money and uh, pay for you to go to North, Car- uh, North, uh, excuse me, uh, uh, New Hampshire, uh, and uh, and try again. Um, so that's why these things are important in the uh, in the early um, these early contests, because otherwise they really wouldn't be that important. I don't think Iowa is not a particularly populous state. It's not necessarily demographically diverse. Uh, it tends to be more dyed in the wool conservative than the rest of the nation, even the other red states. So I don't think it's really indicative of much other than your your initial staying power. Uh, and your ability to demonstrate that you can run a, ca- a campaign that needs to last months and months and, and span all 50 states. Evan, is one of the storylines the fact that if we expect a record turnout among new voters, they probably haven't been polled, therefore the poll could be less reliable? I mean, I'm just kind of playing devil's eye. I mean, Trump's at 51% in Iowa. He looks to be yeah. well ahead. But if there are an abundance of new voters, they probably haven't historically been polled. Fair enough? 
I would say that any reason why why groups of people haven't been polled is probably true, uh, because I don't think polling is, especially the polling that is publicly available and publicly discussed, I don't necessarily think it's very good. I don't think it's all-encompassing. I think uh, that's often done on the cheap. You know, if you're polling 500 people uh, over two days, three weeks ago, and you're just getting to the results now that you're publishing, I don't know how good the poll really is. Uh, you know, this is not the type of polling that campaigns do themselves that keep and keep them confidential, where they're polling tens of thousands of people, especially in a presidential you know, race, uh, you know, over periods of time to try to judge trends in opinion and, and whatnot. Um, so, uh, I, you know, we, we see all these polls. I suspect that some of them are probably generally accurate. I suspect, for instance, that Donald Trump's lead is wide. Uh, I don't necessarily know it's as wide as they say it is. A lot of these polls were the polls predicting that in 2022 that Ron DeSantis would lose by 40 percentage points. Well, he or lose by 20 percentage points. He won by 20. The poll was 40 points off. Um, so I don't know if that really means anything going forward other than, you know, take polls with grains of salt or grains of, you know, corn if you're in Iowa. right? <laughs> well said. Evan, thank you for your uh, for your time. Happy New Year, sir. You got it. Happy New Year, everyone. And um, that's kind of an interesting perspective. I have read some reports about Iowa potentially having a record turnout of new voters. I mean, you got to ask yourself, do new voters come out to vote against Trump or do new voters come out to vote in support of of Donald Trump? Um, Here's my best answer. You ready? I don't know. I I don't know. I mean, I don't have any idea what what the um, if there is an abundance of new voters. And some of the folks in Iowa believe there will be um, a record turnouts. Is that to Trump's advantage or, or is that not to Trump's advantage? I don't know. I don't have any idea. I mean, I could argue that, you know, Trump brings more new voters out than anybody else. I mean, we know the big mistake. Uh, I don't, we don't know. I think personally, the big mistake the GOP will make over the long run of this Trump movement is convincing themselves, look at what we've done. You know, we sold conservatism, we sold limited government, we sold the brand of politics that is most popular in America. I don't buy that for a second. I think people bought into America first, but I don't think they've ever read the National Review. I don't think they will listen to much of conservative talk radio, maybe more now than they did. And it goes back to my point, this is an infant of a political movement where it goes from here. I don't think anybody really and truly knows but if the Republicans believe that Trump voters are ideologically or philosophically uh, motivated, they'll get exactly what they deserve. And, and I've told Democrats of mine, uh, Democrat friends of mine, the Trump voter is ripe for the taking. I mean, they're populist. They probably don't even know it because they're a little bit, <sighs> they're a little bit of a political neophyte, even more so than, than most. I mean, they're just, you know, the world passed me by. The two plates of seafood cost a hundred bucks. I mean, the bag of groceries cost fifty bucks. I'm mad as hell, and I'm not taking it anymore. And here's a guy who kind of speaks my language. It's not about conservatism. It's not about limited government. It's not about neoconservatism or not. I mean, it's about the world has passed me by, and here's a guy that kind of speaks to my my calls, my plea, my standing, my my situation. Let's go to the phones. Breeze, good morning. You're on the air. What's hey, what's up, guys? You know, I, I spent the all last week. I would listen to some of the local stuff here. 
And believe it or not, they have a, they have a jump or two there, too. And, but I'll tell you what I came, came away with. Y'all are better than they are, by the way. Not to let smoke up y'all's butt, but not. <laughs> they, uh, nobody really wants this. It's hard to talk about certain issues, I guess, because they aren't that interesting. It's easy to talk about the election and the bad Democrats and the bad that. And I don't know how we can get people on board for the fact that it's not really blue, you know, Democrat. It, it should be us citizens fighting each other. We ought to be united against the state and the government. What I've determined now that there is absolutely nothing that our government won't do to us. And I think that they're even messing around with our food supply. I've got a, uh, one of my clients, he's, I call him a kid, he's probably 39. And he was telling me that he grew up over there in New York. That's New York State. You know, they think about this now. And the people over there, he said even the Democrats, before all of this stuff started happening with COVID, didn't trust the U.S. Department of Agriculture's animal disease lab over there on Plum Island. And they were convinced that uh, the Lyme disease that they get over there came from Plum Island. And I tell you, I just wouldn't put it past our government. You know, when you got guys like Bill Gates wanting to make laboratory beets, wanting to, they want to get rid of all kind of uh, anybody eating any kind of beet along with the fossil fuel. Then, of course, they want to cover million acres with solar panels. See, these guys are evil, and I wouldn't put them past them doing something to the beet supply in this country. You know, remember all the beet, beet houses, you know, uh, Processing plants are burning down, and then you start seeing diseases with chickens, diseases with hogs, diseases with cows. Now, I know some of those diseases have been around for a long time, but I wouldn't put it past our government to do something to maybe even make those diseases worse. I wouldn't put it past them to do stuff to our deer supply, because if you can't buy meat at the grocery store, and then you can't kill meat in the woods because they all got zombie deer disease. So what in the hell are we going to eat? Laboratory produced meat for whatever they make us eat. Insects, whatever they make us eat. They'll have control over us. Thank you, Breeze. Appreciate that. Um, that's, kind of, that's, that's going out there a bit. I mean, we're not afraid to go out there a bit, but um, manipulating food supply. I mean, that, you know, some folks will buy into that. I mean, I, I'm not saying I do or don't. Um, here's what I have learned. Just when you think the, the, the burning desire to have power ends here and virtue, integrity, ethic take over, we realize, no, it's a little further down the road than you imagined. Uh, they didn't stop there. Um, well, surely they wouldn't mislead about the side effects or potential side effects of a vaccine in the name of corporate profit and partnership between government and, I mean, just imagine where we were pre-COVID. Now, now, some of us conspiracy theorists, I'll include myself in that, I mean, we weren't surprised when we learned how organized and orchestrated the effort was to mislead the public about it. And I'm not saying get vaccinated or not. I'm not saying get boosted or not. I'm just saying that, that all of us had to believe that there was a point that misleading was so dangerous, you had to allow virtue and integrity and ethic to take over. And now we found that. You know, it, it, it may not be where I think it is, but it's surely not where you thought it was. Let's take a break. We'll be back in a few. 843-661-0937. Okay, Josh, 
I need you to um, help us work through this particular debate we'll have. So we're talking about food. We're talking about medicine. We're talking about all these circumstances we find ourselves in that allow us, if we're bent, I mean, if we have that bent gene, um, questioning government authority, they've given ample opportunity to question government authority. We're not, we're not questioning whether or not the media and the country in general, and I'm using air quotes, Josh, are run by graduates of elite universities. But I mean, that's undeniable. It's as undeniable as saying the the raid at Mar-a-Lago helped Donald Trump. I mean, there's no doubt about that. There's a um, I mean, there's a a percentage of the vote that DeSantis had, a percentage of the vote that Trump had when Trump's home was raided in Mar-a-Lago. The percentage of vote for Donald Trump went up. The percentage of vote for Ron DeSantis went down. I mean, that's data. I mean, the, 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 Josh and I can have a belief. Josh can believe, wow, man, it feels like that the, um, the men with guns at Mar-a-Lago and the raid on his personal residence, I'm not saying justified or not. I'm talking about the political optics and the political narrative. Josh can say, something in my bones tells me that that helped Trump. But you got data now that clearly shows, okay, I was right about that, but there's no denying that. So, so when we say that the majority of the nation's big decisions, and by that I mean what makes the news and what doesn't, what is prominent in political discourse and what's not, who runs and makes decisions at the State Department or the DOJ or the Transportation Department, when I say the majority of those decisions are made by Ivy Leaguers or graduates of elite universities, Josh can't say no, they're not. I mean, I've got data that shows that. I mean, I think it's 60% of all upper-level management in government agencies are, are graduates of elite universities. So, so Josh can say, well, Ken, you're just making that up. No, now, now, now here's what I can't define or, 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 or be certain about. What decisions do they make or not? Um, it's easy for me to say, Hey, because they're graduates of elite universities, they're liberal. Because they're graduates of elite universities, they're going to keep the you know the boat afloat. They're going to keep playing the game. That's that's more ambiguous. I mean, I, it's hard to find discernible data. I can find a lot of data that says, hey, you know, all the um the upper level management of the State Department, you know, Ken and Josh are having a beer, and I look at Josh, and Josh says, hey man, what were you talking about yesterday morning when you talked about? The senior level management positions at the State Department are are all or majority are graduates of elite. I mean, I give him data there, but then if I tell Josh and I'll say, Josh, the majority of those decisions were made in kind of an anti-Trump way, or a pro-vaccine way, or a uh, kind of a pro-neoconservative way. I don't have any data that shows that. Now, but that's my hunch. That that's and and it goes back to what I what I argued with or what we kind of commented on Breeze's call. Um, I mean, Breeze believes they're mess, they'll, they'll mess with the food supply. I don't know. I mean, I don't have any idea. I, I do know now and, and kind of a postmortem that they misled about the vaccine. I mean, we know that I'm not saying the vaccine works or doesn't work. Forget that. I mean, that's not the debate. I mean, that they told us certain things about the vaccine that just weren't true. Just simply were not true. Um, and they never said, well, I mean, here's what we suspect. 
Now we had done all the R and D. We had done all the um the placebo testing, the uh, the clinical trials. We hadn't done everything that we normally do, so we're a little less certain about you know this as opposed to to the other. So when you take the vaccine, please understand that taking this vaccine, you're assuming a little more risk than you normally would if you took a vaccine that we had all the clinical trials and all the placebo testing and everything we normally do, the decade-long um, process of getting a vaccine to market. We didn't do that. Now, now see, I think, and that goes back to my point, Josh, if you're not, if you don't have an agenda, why wouldn't you frame it that way? I mean, if you're not pro-vaccine, and then you've got to ask the second question, so what makes you so pro-vaccine? I mean, is it is it Pfizer's giving you money? Is it Pfizer's funding some of the research that you're dependent upon? Or is it just you want control over the people? And And here's the question I've got for Josh. I mean, I personally believe that the graduates of, the, of these elite universities have been convinced, and maybe some of that's going into the door. I mean, they, they believe they're, quote-unquote, the chosen ones. And when they go into the elite university, they receive this confirmation, yeah, you're the chosen one. I mean, everybody can't go to Harvard and Yale and Princeton and Dartmouth and Brown and Cornell and, and Penn. Everybody can't go here. I mean, only special people come here. So when you, when you feel special going into the door, and you're told you're even more special than you really are, and you go out of the backside of that university, and you're on the editorial board of the New York Times. You're running CNN. You're number three at the State Department. What is your motivation, Josh? I mean, if you're a, what, 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 you see where I'm headed? I mean, it, it can't be altruism. I mean, CNN, here's where I, and here's where I get real confused, personally. Here's, here's the personal conflict. Do they do this? Do they go along and get along because the power and influence that goes along with going along and getting along, or do they believe they're intellectually morally superior? I think it's a little of both. Okay, well, explain. I mean, pontificate for a second, my dear friend. Well, I would say that um, it it's a complex question. So one of the things— Did I frame it fairly? Oh, yeah, sure. Do they, do they believe they're the chosen ones— when they get accepted to Harvard and Yale and Dartmouth and Princeton and and all these elite universities, do they believe going into the door? Mm, okay, I'm a little different. Yeah. Okay, and I then do they're think and so. they're fed that while they're in there, right? I mean, you are different. This is a different place. I mean, this is a uh, you know, I mean, some of those folks have to go to Carolina, Clemson. I mean, they'll they'll be okay. Some of those folks have to go to Coastal and Francis Marion. They'll they'll be okay. But but we're the chosen ones. So you go in with that predisposition. It's, I mean, you, you, you're, you're fed all this fertilizer, <laughs> you know, for lack of a better word. And, and that ego grows a like a, you know, a marijuana vine in a basement of a, of a double wide with, with, you know, ultraviolet light shining on it. But my point is when you come out of the other side, it's easier to go along and get along. It's easier to be a liberal. Because the majority of people at State Department are liberal. The majority of people in media are liberal. It's easy to be one of them. It's far more advantageous. You get paid more. You probably sit on more boards. You go to more symphony concerts when you when you do that. Um, but but are you doing it for that? Or are you doing it because you believe that, that yeah. I mean, I, you know, these people to go to Francis Marion and Coastal and Carolina Clemson, I mean, that, they need people like me to lead them through. The, the daily occurrences in the forest of ignorance. I think it's case by case. I think there's two main groups 
uh, that that are kind of grandfathered in as you're getting at. There's the kind of the George Bushes where they're uh, George Bush Juniors where they're you know they're they're just in the club already. They're born into the club and so George you know, W. Bush was a trust fund baby. Probably, ah, I yeah, agree with that. And that they're just they're in it because they're in it and they they like being in it. And and every everyone else tells them like, don't worry, we'll we'll take care of this. They're, and and they're just along for the ride. And then there is the people that again, as you said, their grandfather went to Harvard, their father went to Harvard, and now they're going to Harvard. And they believe that they are just naturally better. They believe, well, it's my job to kind of direct the the masses. And you know, they they may hold some private beliefs that are more not sinister, but more kind of like narcissistic. Uh, and some of them may hold less so, but I think deep down, I, I get what you're getting at, and I agree with it. I okay. think they are. And here's where we are. Right, here's my analysis. You ready? Here's where we are. Rev, Ken, Josh, and the majority of our listeners believe that too. We believed that we're a little better off having graduates of Harvard running the State Department. We believed we're a little better off having the guys from Princeton or the ladies from Yale running the media, but they are probably a little brighter, a little more diligent, a little more persistent, a little more uh, academically inclined than we are. One of these moments, and in, 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 it probably happened in 16, I guess that would have been the, uh, the, the, the moment we walked off into the abyss. We, we began questioning that. Okay. Um, I don't have a lot of political influence, but it seems like the people that do screw it up every chance they get. I mean, nothing ever goes as expected. See, I think that's why we ended up with Trump. And, and I, that's why I think this is kind of a, um, a generational shift and a generational movement that will eventually overtake the federal government. Because I think there's a, an awareness now that Josh, Rev, Ken, and our listeners have. We, we kind of, um, Josh isn't going to admit how gullible he was. Rev's not going to admit how naive he was. I'm not going to admit how misled I was. But, but I'll say it over the game. I mean, there, there was a bit of me younger that I said, okay, I didn't go to Princeton, Yale, or Harvard. I probably don't need to be doing that. I mean, I, you know, I probably need to trust those guys and those ladies who went there. And at some point in time in my existence, I said, wow, maybe we got too many of those. Maybe those people aren't all they've been cracked up to be. Not to mention that. What is their motive? Yeah. You know, do, do they have a – is there an agenda to – to fundamentally change but, but the I country think, but, and ignore but, the Constitution but, and things like that. But I think we questioned their competency before we questioned their motivation. <laughs> Once we question their competency, then you question their motivation. I, I did yeah. once again. I, I don't have any data. I mean, I've got data on some of these other things we talk about. This is totally, totally speculation. I mean, it's nothing but speculation. But I believe that the big the, the, the paradigm shift um, is when we, the people who didn't go to elite university, say, I thought y'all were all that. <laughs> I don't know that you are anymore. I really kind of messed it up. Yeah, you messed it up old, <laughs> substantially. And it seems your life got better while everybody else didn't. Take a break. Back in a few. 843-661-0937 is our number. So I'm trying to kind of follow the the timeline here of the the people that go to the elite universities. They go in thinking they're smarter and better. Well, I mean, but but let, let's back up half okay. a step before right, you frame just, it. Okay. There's no denying 
I mean, once again, the data clearly shows that right now we began the show uh, paying a tribute to Kale Yarborough and arguing about college football. We'll get back to that. But but after that, we, I think we began the show by saying, okay, first work day of 2024, there's a 40% odds, or the odds are 40% that Trump gets elected. The odds are about 30% that Biden gets elected. The odds are about 30% that somebody not named Trump or Biden get elected. That's kind of what the data shows here. The point I'm making, Rev, when I look at the data, I mean, the, the, the hard truth, the fact of the matter is the majority of media outlets in America today, the, the biggest decisions made, and I'm talking about what is allowed to be in the mainstream, what is prioritized, what's the big story, small story, the majority of those decisions are made by graduates of elite universities, Ivy League in particular. The majority of decisions made at the State Department and DOJ and some of the some of the government agencies are made by those same people or same kinds of people from those same kinds of universities. That's undeniable. I mean, you can look at the number of graduates from Carolina Clemson, Francis Marion, and Coastal. Not many, not many at all, inhabiting the State Department, DOJ, CIA, FBI. I mean, the, the hierarchy of those, the political hierarchy of those organizations are all nearly from Ivy League schools. Same thing at the CNN newsroom. When the editorial board of the New York Times gets together, there, there aren't many Clemson or Carolina graduates there, Francis Marion Coastal graduates. I mean, it's all the majority Ivy League universities. But what I'm arguing is in the abstract. I don't know the answer to this. My theory is that once they go there, they're... They believe they got there because they're fundamentally different. I mean, they, you know, they're a little they're more smarter. Talented. Well, I mean, that, that's better. right. And then my argument is once they get there, the university confirms their suspicion. I am chosen. <laughs> I am a little better, bigger, brighter, smarter, you know, more persistent, uh, more persevering. Now, now, Josh's argument, Rev, is that, well, I mean, there's probably some of that, but there's a lot of trust fund babies, you know, who go there who aren't very competent who aren't very diligent, who aren't very, that's my point. And I think once the country, once you have a couple of generations, I believe the best and brightest at one time did go to Harvard. I think you earned your keep going to Harvard. But all of a sudden, the best and brightest go to Harvard. They build businesses. They make enormous fortunes. They give to that university. Their son, their, their grandson, may or may not be the best and brightest, but they figure out a way to get him in anyway. Some of these legacy students and legacy students. And sooner or later, there's such a dilution of the best and brightest that you got a bunch of dumbasses. Running things. Yeah, running things. <laughs> and and the important things. Bingo. <laughs> and that's my point. That's my theory. Now, now, once again, there's another point to the theory. And, and Josh and I were debating that. So if my theory is right... And at some point in time, the best and brightest went to these universities. And that's exactly who you want running the media. That's exactly who you want running government agencies because they're really good. I mean, you know, if I had to pick 10 people, they'd be the two that I'd pick to run these all-important organizations. Well, all of a sudden, the great-great-grandkid whose great-great-grandfather, you know, endowed Harvard with a $50 million endowment. And, I mean, what is Harvard going to do say? No, nah, he can't come. He's not smart enough. He's not competent enough. He's not capable, not motivated enough. That's where I think we got as a nation. The, the next leg, the next shoe to drop, so to speak, 
was when you and I, who didn't go to Harvard or Yale, kind of looked in the mirror and said, I might could do as good a job as they could. Because, see, I think part of that is the guilt that we share by believing that, you know, because they went to these schools, because they got educated in these hallowed chambers, they are indeed the ones that need to be. I mean, I'm guilty of that. I mean, I don't when I when I was younger and somebody said, hey, he's a Harvard educated lawyer, a, a Yale educated businessman or woman, I'd go, okay, well, I mean, they, they probably have their feces consolidated. I mean, that's the person I that probably needs to be running the media, needs to be running the um, the um the government agencies. And all of a sudden you and I wake up one day and go, wow, the media sucks. Wow, those government agencies suck. Why do they suck? I mean, they're run by all these graduates from elite universities, but they're not the best and brightest. They got there because somebody in their family preceded them who was best and brightest. And, and, and you know, the, the person who probably went to Harvard 60 or 70 or 80 years ago, Rev, I doubt they thought that about themselves when they went there. I mean, they probably said, hey, I, I think I'm smart enough to come here and compete, but I'm going to work my butt off. I mean, nobody owes me anything. I'm not entitled to anything. And I think now these Ivy League and elite universities are full of trust fund kids who expect a job at the State Department once they, you know, walk the aisle and get that diploma. What, what do you mean the State Department isn't hiring? Of course they're hiring. They might not be hiring graduates from Carolina and Clemson, but they're always hiring graduates from Harvard, Yale, Dartmouth, Princeton. Uh, well, I, the, the Kennedy School of Bill, I mean, really? I mean, do you not know who I am and where I come from? And you're telling me CNN is not hiring today? I mean, I, I get it. They're not hiring regular people. But but please understand <laughs> that there's a difference in me and regular people. Let's go to the phone. <laughs> I was going to say, didn't you, isn't this the genesis, too, of what we refer to as the cathedral? Sure. That's exactly who it is. And it goes back to what Tucker says. I'm like Tucker. I'm not opposed to ruling class. I'm not. If it's the best and brightest, we'll be in a good place. They will make good decisions. The argument is... <laughs> The, the ruling class is not the best and brightest, and we have realized that. That's why we're in such a politically chaotic period. Let's go to the phone. Anthony in North Carolina, good morning. Hey, Happy New Year, fellas. Same to you, Happy Anthony. Um, I don't mean to change the subject, though, but one thing, Ken, as long as we're talking about them, the politicians, and they talking about what we're doing, we're in trouble, man. we got to make actions. Have them talk about what we doing. We sitting back waiting on them to change and we're waiting for them to, to do stuff. We in trouble. But the reason why I called was um, thank you, a breeze, for that statement made about the food thing. And people who do their homework, they upon that. Yes, our food is being poisoned. And um, something else too. I called last time. I might have sounded a little bit crazy, but I did my homework on Andrew Ross Sorkin, the guy who interviewed. Um, Elon Musk on, on that big interview. And going on YouTube doing my homework, it's a lot of people that are asking questions like, why is, is his eye like that? Take your time, look at one of his pictures, three, four of his pictures. I've never seen someone with, with one pupil that's like a cat eye. But on YouTube, a lot of people are asking questions about Andrew Ross Sorkin, the guy who interviewed him. But like I said, the, the Democrats are real quiet about Trump. So this thing about the y'all think that Trump gonna get elected and run Washington Democrats because today or maybe tomorrow the Epstein uh, flight law is coming out. Oh, and I saw it. Trump name is all over it. That's that pedophile island. Everybody who, who, who went to that island, and he got some major names on there. So what about Epstein? 
He covered his back. He had secret video and secret um, call logs, flight logs. Everybody who, who, um, who went to the island. But it's coming out either today or, the, or tomorrow, probably, who all went to his island. And, and I saw a truck name is all over it. My last thing is, I found out, too, that the the, the Israel leader, what's his name? It's a hard name to put now, Netanyahu. But many, many, many moons ago, a Palestinian man or two or three Palestinian men killed his brother. That's why he's so gun-ho on not killing Hamas, but killing everything over there. He's on a, on a, on a revenge. About 25, 30 years ago, a Palestinian man killed his brother. And that's why he's so gun-ho. And I listen to nothing that America say he's killing women and children. Now, the Bible says that this generation might not see the sins, or their father, their father might not see the sins, but they, they children and, and grandchildren will. Don't you think that, that the way we're going now, as a white person, that in, in the future, it could be very, very less places that y'all can go visit. Like right now, if a white girl go to Mexico, she might be kidnapped. Most people that most people that y'all go because of all these wars and stuff, it's places like France, Europe, Australia, white places. Y'all are smaller. Y'all narrowing y'all places of places to go because of all these wars and stuff. Y'all got enemies everywhere. And now a lot of Palestinian people are here in America now. It ain't real different. I'm just saying all these wars, yeah, we can go around saying we can go everybody, but we have nowhere to go as Americans in the future because everybody going to want to kill us. That's plain Thank you, Anthony. We got a hard break. Well, I'm in a hard break. We got a, I don't want to get too far behind, but I'll answer or I'll address, I want to answer, I'll address some of the comments Anthony made on the other side. Back in a few. 843-661-0937 is our number. Takes Tuesdays to make uh, Fridays. This go. is kind of a different week. And I want to thank folks for um, sticking with us. Uh, I heard Rev. I don't have any idea what it takes to make this work, but I heard Rev congratulate um, Josh on not a single issue of the best we could do of Wake Up Carolina. So, Josh, I joined Rev in congratulating and thanking you for all the hard work while I was doing very little, <laughs> do, do, doing very little relating to politics or radio or, or anything else. And that is a lot of work behind the sure scenes to set no up the, the, the best of recordings. We are for six shows because we were off uh, that many days. And and Josh did a great job. Everything ran smoothly over the last week. And um, so thank you. And congratulations. Thank you, guys. And um, that's all I can do is tell you thank you. you got to talk <laughs> them by getting you more money or, or whatever comes along with our I do want to say this now. Um, we started the show this morning talking about football and the sad state of college football. And by that, I mean, you, you've got a sport that is struggling to really find its future. I mean, you've got opt-outs and transfer portal. You're playing. I'll tell you how goofed up college football is. You ready? It played its exhibition games at the end of the season. And the people that run college football, I hope and pray, don't run it for the next 25 years because it's been about power, control, and money. And I understand that the majority of things in our life about power, control, and money, but the future of college football will be better if the big decisions are made by a different group of people than have made the big decisions about the sport for the last 25, 30, 35 years. Where it goes from here, don't have any idea. We followed that with kind of a, a, a mini tribute to Kale Yarborough but I want to, in the 9 o'clock hour, make sure that uh, we got some things here I want to play to uh, properly 
respect and pay tribute to one of our local legends and local heroes, um, now the late um, Kale Yarbrough. So that's in store in the nine o'clock hour right now. Dr. Will Bolt, history chair and uh, and and raging Tennessee volunteer fan <laughs> at Francis Marion University, is with us. Good morning. He's wearing the sweatshirt. That's, that's, that's right. Good morning, guys. Yeah. Uh, do we have a mic Mike. that we can turn up? There you go. There okay. you go. We good now. Yeah. Uh, the volunteers. Yeah, yeah. The volunteers look good uh, in their bowl game, in their exhibition game. Yeah, it was, as the, the point you make, Iowa and Tennessee both kind of travel well. And if you saw the game, the Citrus Bowl, it's a pretty good bowl game. There are plenty of good seats. So the 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 upper decks were completely empty. So I mean, and, and Tennessee was hit hard by some some opt outs. But I mean, it was a it was a nice relaxing game. Iowa just. If terrible, you, terrible if you win, it's a bowl game. If you lose, it's an exhibition right, you're game. Just, you're getting guys playing time. <laughs> yeah. So it doesn't it's... really matter one way, one way or the other. Something happened while we were away, and I want to. And I thought of you, and I want to get your your take on this. I have accused or congratulated, uh, whatever you want to frame it as. I, I've accused and congratulated um, Governor Nikki Haley um, of being the most ambitious and disciplined politician I know. Now. Who do I know? I, I, you know, you've studied far more about some of the early founders and politicians uh-huh. of America uh, history, but she was <sighs> faced with a difficult question in New Hampshire. Some are arguing a Democrat plant. I would probably say more like the DeSantis, DeSantis. campaign uh, <laughs> that does this. She gave a rambling yeah. and incoherent answer. I'm not saying, Dr. Bolt, that she gave the wrong answer. Because I've often said that the Confederacy is very complicated. There's a lot more to it, yeah. Sure, sure. But, but you've got to start, Dr. Bolt right. and Rev, you've got to start the answer with, I'm condemning slavery. Mm-hmm. Under no circumstance should another human being have a right to own a fellow man, woman, child. Under any circumstance, that should be forbidden. Now let's get right. to the Confederacy. You, you could have easily, it's an easy pivot. Right. And say, of course, it's it's over slavery. And then you could say, well, not every southern or not every northerner fought the war for that issue. I mean, there's the the great story, right, of the northern soldier when he comes down south, asks the southern soldier, why are you fighting this war? And the southern soldier says, because you're down here. You know, you've invaded my homeland. Of course, I'm going to pick up a musket, a rifle and defend my homeland. So, right. She could have it was it's it's an easy pivot to kind of get away. It, it opens up a can of worms, though, for everybody who's saying who doesn't like MAGA, doesn't like Trump. Well, why couldn't she say the simple answer, right? You, you, you take the layup if it's right there, and then you move on to the next question. You live to fight another day. Why was she afraid to say the simple answer? And so once again, it sort of casts us, gives conservative Republicans a, a bit of a black eye. Okay, but, but you and I, you, you grew up in Buffalo. I grew oh, up yeah? in Pamplico. I'm a native <laughs> southerner. I mean, you've devoted, I mean, you've made a career of early American history yeah, from the right. revolution to the Civil War. Is fascinating time period. Okay. That's my bread and butter. Yeah. I mean, that, and that's part of the most fascinating time in American I think history. So. The founding of a nation and then the dividing so the of a nation. Of yeah. but, but as a Southerner, I mean, I, you know, I can't emphatically say that slavery was an abomination. I mean, yeah. it's, 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 it's reprehensible. It's inhumane. It's, in, it's, it's vulgar. It's everything. I mean, I, I can list a, a word... But, but I do believe, Dr. Bolt, that there has been a misunderstanding of the Confederacy because organized academia has refused to allow a discussion about the complications of the Confederacy to take place. 
No, no, you you are you are absolutely right. The again, in in the southern states that seceded, may know they weren't shy about saying that they were leaving the union because of this issue. But again, that doesn't mean everybody in the south, everybody who was in the war, was fighting for slavery. Many of these guys were conscripts; they were drafted; they had nothing nothing else to do. And so, right there, and they, they they were forced into this fight. And a lot of guys in the north, they're immigrants; they don't really care too too much about the issue of slavery. They believed if democracy failed here in America, if a couple of southern states <clears throat> can simply pick up their toys and leave because an election didn't go their way, how can they expect reforms in democracy to take root back in other parts of Europe, back in other parts of the world? So, again, it's it's a multi-layered question. I think Governor Haley was trying to got just a little too cute, and maybe if she had— and, again, if, if I were advising her, I wouldn't have anticipated— that question at all um if i if sort of in a if i could go back and say hey this is what you get just say slavery and then kind of shift and pivot onto something else and so that's an easy way but again it's it's a sound bite and something like that's that that's gonna haunt haunt her if 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 a republican wins if it's trump or desantis is she sent a confirmable because of this i mean this is this is the cross that she's gonna have to bear for a long long time unfortunately is was Lincoln genuinely an abolitionist? Lincoln, Lincoln's a, a, the consummate politician. I mean, it's a Walk Lincoln. me through the evolution, the political evolution of Abraham Lincoln sure. from from beginning to signing the Emancipation right. Proclamation. Lincoln, no doubt, disliked the institution of slavery, but recognized it was constitutional. And so you, you you can't get around. So Lincoln simply wants to stop the spread of slavery. Even Lincoln believed if you keep it bottled up in the Southeast, slavery's kind of withering away in Maryland, Kentucky, Arkansas. Eventually, those states are going to kind of flip, and maybe within a generation, once it's contained to just us, the deep, deep South, maybe you can reach a critical mass, and that's how you can get it. But when the war begins, Lincoln says time and time again, we're fighting this war simply to preserve the Union. But as the casualties mount and there's more and more political pressure on Lincoln, Lincoln now begins to move and evolve and says, well, we need to make this war. We need to remake the Union, a Union without the original sin of slavery. And this is what slowly leads him to supporting emancipation. So was Lincoln politically, forget the human side of this, it's hard, but forget that for a second, in the name of political expediency, was Lincoln more opposed to secession than he was slavery. Is that a fair yeah, question? Yeah, that's, no, that's, that's, that's an easy question. Yes, Lincoln disliked, didn't like slavery, but again, he recognized it was constitutional. And again, even once Lincoln issues the Emancipation Proclamation, Lincoln realized this wasn't the final, the final thing. A future president could countermand that proclamation. Lincoln was afraid the courts would strike it down. Then you have to make—this is why you have the amendment, the 13th Amendment, which settles the issue once and for all. And so, again, Lincoln was very, very cautious, moved very, very slowly towards this issue. Once he got there, he committed himself fully, and there was no there was no turning around, no going back. Who were the slavery, slavery sympathizers of that era, of that time, of that moment? Well, again, you got a lot of guys in the South, sort of like your James Henry Hammonds and kind of in South Carolina. You got a lot of northern guys who were not in— who believed if slavery was abolished, and a lot of Northern Democrats were able to sort of support the institution of slavery, one, because 
in the DNA of the Democratic Party was the issue of states' rights. And so a Northern Democrat would say, I may not like slavery, but I believe it's up to each of the states. My home state of New York, Pennsylvania, Massachusetts got rid of it. That's their right. If South Carolina, Virginia wants to keep it, that's their right. There's an economic component. Uh, The Democratic Party was also the party of your industrial workers. And they realized if slavery is abolished, suddenly African-Americans, millions will now be competing for these lowest paying jobs. And so that's why the lot of Northern Democrats were saying, eh, let's, let's kind of keep this, let's kind of keep this in place. This is going to put out of work uh, a lot of guys in the North if slavery is abolished. So again, there's a whole, there's a whole lot to it. It's not just as uh, black and white as we like to think. Is it fair it to say that mine and your political hero, Thomas Jefferson, <laughs> made an effort to address slavery in the original draft of the Declaration of Independence? Right. Jefferson wanted to blame the King of England for fastening the institution of slavery on the United States of America. It's Jefferson's kind of way of saying, you know, we know it's bad, but it's it's not our fault. But a lot of the other delegates, particularly the ones from Georgia and South Carolina, said, uh-uh, this is, we don't want to go down this road at this point. And Jefferson was very, very upset. Jefferson wanted this uh, included in the Declaration of Independence, tried several times to keep it in there, uh, but in the end he realized, well, this wasn't the hill to die on. And Jefferson believed that slavery was going to just kind of wither away uh, gradually over time. And he didn't have the clairvoyance to realize just uh, the invention of the cotton gin. This would fundamentally make slavery much more profitable. When you teach, and this is such an unfair question, <laughs> but but why has academia chosen to paint the Confederacy as a simple pro, pro-slavery yeah. um, organization or entity? Well, it's, it's in reaction because the earliest history, sort of up until maybe the 1960s, you have this sort of lost cause mentality that the Southerners were— Explain that. Well, the lost cause sort of comes about in the era after the Civil War. Lots of Southern generals, Southern politicians try and win the battles. They couldn't win with the sword. They're going to try and win it with the pen. And so they're going to try and rewrite the history— And a lot of guys in the North at the end of the 1800s, the early 1900s, said, it ain't worth it, man. Just go ahead and do whatever whatever you want. We're more concerned with making money, with industrializing the country. We're more concerned with making an empire. So if you guys want to try and rewrite your history, uh, by all means, go for it. Once you kind of get to the 60s, 1960s, and the civil rights movement, this is where you start to say, well, no, there isn't. There isn't anything really noble. Uh, The Southerners, in fact, many of them were— in, in the opinion of many, had committed high treason uh, and were very, very lucky uh, that you only had a couple of Shermans and Grants, uh, that they didn't really feel the hard hand of war as much as they should have. Is it a fair debate to argue that Lincoln—I mean, some would argue he was a tyrant. Uh, so they, L- Lincoln Well, he, used, he had to violate the Constitution sure, in order but, to preserve it. But, but Lincoln, if not a tyrant, used slavery as an issue to become— the consummate central planner. Well, once then it's an excellent. Once the South secedes from the Union, correct. The North Which was has, what year? Uh, very very end of eighteen sixty. South Carolina is first, December twentieth, eighteen sixty, and then the next couple of weeks, the rest of the Deep South: Georgia, Florida, Mississippi, Alabama, Texas, and Louisiana. And basically, the SEC. All so see, even before Lincoln becomes still, still a bunch of renegades and cowboys. <laughs> yeah, still, as someone from an SEC school, but again, the the Upper South, Virginia, Tennessee, uh, Arkansas, North Carolina, they all adopt a wait and see approach. 
And it kind of gets back to the argument of it being over slavery. Why is the Deep South in such a hurry to get out even before Lincoln is elected? Because they know once Lincoln becomes president, all the powers of patronage, president gets to appoint over 10,000 jobs. And of course, he gives federal jobs to his supporters. There's no Lincoln lovers in South Carolina, Georgia, or Alabama, right? So who's Lincoln going to pick to be the customs collectors, the postmasters, more importantly, the district attorneys and the federal judges? He's going to pull guys from up north, guys who sound like me. You're going to have Yankees occupying federal officers, more importantly, federal judgeships, federal district attorneys, guys who have to make important decisions on the status of fugitive slaves. And so, again, this is why the Deep South gets out even before Lincoln has a chance. So is that the motivation that Lee had to agree and lead the Confederate Army? Well, I mean, Lee was an educated man, <laughs> yes, a very a, educated man. Well, Lee and Connell and Jefferson Davis don't really, priests of war don't fit that mode of, they're called the fire readers, the guys who are just fanatical about defending slavery. They weren't in that lane, but once the war comes about, this is what they sort of find themselves doing. And the story of Lee is Lee was, of course, offered through Back Channel's command of the Union Army and said there was a higher duty to his home of Virginia. And on the night the Lee's daughters remembered, he was walking the halls of Arlington. Uh, he couldn't sleep at all. He knew he had to make such a momentous decision. And again, he placed loyalty to his home state of Virginia ahead of loyalty to the Union do you agree with Shelby Foote, the great historian, <laughs> Civil War historian, that Lee didn't struggle with that decision? It was an easy call for him to be loyal to Virginia because he was a Virginian. Maybe by a Virginian. But again, this was a guy who had graduated second in his class at Westwood, had been in the Army now for, for nearly 30 years. And would have been <clears throat> president of the United States had he accepted the overture Pro to, to lead the, the Union commanding Army. general right. I mean, he was highly, highly one of the most respected soldiers at the time. And so, all right, this was a momentous decision, turning his back on the government that he had supported and had been very beneficial to him throughout his life. And he knew this was a decision there probably wasn't going to be any going back from. Very, very interesting. Uh, I just thought it was uh, Nikki, excuse me, Governor Haley, said what <laughs> she said, and I knew Bolt would offer a very <laughs> historically accurate um, context of her answering that question. We'll take a break. Good. Josh, we'll be back in just a couple of minutes. 843-661-0937 is our number. Takes Tuesdays to make Fridays. Dr. Will Bolt, History Chair, yeah. Francis Marion University, and ardent and, and, and passionate Buffalo Bill and Tennessee yeah, volunteer fan. Uh, if you're a Tennessee fan, you want a bowl game. If you're a Kentucky fan, you lost an exhibition <laughs> game. Clemson won yeah, a bowl game. Yeah. Kentucky lost an, an exhibition game. It was an exciting game. Uh, it, it was, a, it was yeah. a very interesting game. Uh, and the NFL concludes this week, I think. Um, yep. There, and I want to get to this in a second about the 14th Amendment, but right now Fox News Radio's Jared Halpern is in our nation's capital. Jared, good morning. How are you? I am well. Good morning to you. Happy New Year, sir. So some of these states are ruling on whether or not President Trump is eligible to even be on the ballot in this year's, now this year's election. Where do we stand right now, Jarrett, in regards to Trump being on the on the ballot or not? 
Well, I think even in states where decisions have been made, there, there are still question marks, right? So let's take a look at the two states where um, in Colorado, the Supreme Court of that state ruled that, that uh, the former president is ineligible. That's obviously been appealed now to the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, briefs are due in the next uh, couple of weeks in a case that really could get fast-tracked. And then obviously we have uh, what happened last week in Maine uh, with the Secretary of State, so the top elections official. Uh, declaring that the president was ineligible, that will be appealed, um, and it will start likely uh, in those state courts. That's how it went uh, in Colorado. In Colorado, elections officials said that the president was eligible. It went through various courts, and, and the Supreme Court, obviously, of that state made that decision. You have had other state officials uh, reach uh, different conclusions. In, Ca- in California, for instance, the state elections officials uh, say that Trump can remain on the ballot. In Michigan, you've had um, the state Supreme Court there rule that Trump can stay on the ballot. And so these are decisions that certainly are going to be appealed. You have active lawsuits in about 17 states right now, from Alaska to Wisconsin, West Virginia, Vermont, Texas, New York, right? And in some of those cases, uh, you have had uh, courts quickly dismiss it, and then uh, they have been appealed. And, and in other cases, you've had uh, state officials make a ruling, and then those decisions have been appealed. I, I think what this leads to is at some point the U.S. Supreme Court getting involved. And like I said, this Colorado case probably is the first one um, that we get any sort of, of decision from the Supreme Court on. What will be interesting is how wide-ranging that decision is. In but, other words, does the U.S. Supreme Court use that Colorado case to kind of blanketly say, here's what you can and cannot do? Or are they much more narrow and, and kind of take these on a case-by-case basis, depending on sort of the merits of each individual lawsuit? But, Jared, what if the court declines? I mean, what if the, I well, mean, the, 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 the court's so not obligated right, so the, to pick the case up? They're not. And that's why I say it'll matter sort of how they do it. Right. If they because the case that's going to be in front of them would be Colorado. And so if they decline to take that case up, then the Colorado Supreme Court case decision would stand. And that would mean that the the president is not allowed on the primary ballot. Um, But that would leave unresolved all of these other lawsuits unless they decline it. Sort of in mass decline all the others. That would be unusual. Usually, you don't decline a case until it reaches you. So that's why I say I'll be interested to see kind of how narrow or not any sort of word from the U.S. Supreme Court is. Because you're right, they could just decline to take the Colorado case. And if they decline to take the Colorado case, it does kind of leave in doubt and leave in limbo all of these other active lawsuits that are going on in about 17 states. Well explained, Jared. Thank you for your time. Happy New Year, sir. Happy New Year. So, 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 stick with me for a so, 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 stick with me for a second. I mean, that's, that's that's what I do when I'm ready to roll. What if the court? So, 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 what if the court chooses to be activist right. by being passive? Well, yeah, I, I never. What, what, but yeah. stick with me, Bob. Right, what? Because right. it goes back you're, really, you're, you're, truly, your show. No, no, no. It's our show right now. <laughs> so, 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 um, so, so, so. If the court, because it really goes back to Section Three, Fourteenth Amendment yeah. of the Fourteenth Amendment. We talked about the Civil War. Yeah. We talked about the Confederacy. I mean, the intent of the Fourteenth Amendment was to stop some of these rebels and outlaws from Post seeking Civil public War. office because yeah. they're telling what they'll do if they infiltrate <laughs> this um this big, gigantic, enormous fantastic government of the uh, the great United States of America. We don't want any Southerners 
and, and rebels and outlaws, you know, involved in that. But but what if the court chose, Rev, and, and Dr. Volt, what if the court chose to be activist by, by being to. passive? And I, I, I got to say, you, I, you stumped me. I did not. They're not Consider obligated that, that they would punt, to take the case up. Right, and they, you are absolutely right. That, of course, is a defeat for Trump, a victory for the for the left, if you will. I'm sure that Roberts doesn't want this in his lap. I mean, this is not what he signed up for. He's a chamber of commerce sort of business regulation. He doesn't like the socials and certainly doesn't want this. I don't know how you. I don't but, know how they ignore. It. They have well, to. But do, I'm such a simpleton. <clears throat> You're an academic. It's unfair to you. But it's, it's, it's a little bit black around and find out. Yeah, no, you, you're, you know, you're absolutely Co- Colorado, right. Maine, uh, California, some of these other states. Um, you ask for it, here we go. He, he, here's a front <laughs> yeah. runner, and and right now, I mean, I looked at the odds this morning. Donald Trump has a forty percent chance to be president. Joe Biden has a thirty percent chance to be president. Someone else other than Biden or Trump awesome. have about a thirty percent <laughs> chance. So you're basically saying that the American people's favorite. To be president in November of 2024 is going to be excluded from some of these blue of state the ballots. And it's kind of intriguing that it's Colorado, not exactly a, a blue state, one of those purple states that's been kind of leaning Democrat for a while. I don't know. This might be maybe the, the right one for the court to kind of pick up and settle. If it, I, I forgive me, I dis, I think the court has to. It would be the sane and prudent thing, yes. but sanity, not and, want to, but but sanity but and prudence doesn't yes, always yes. always carry the day. And I'm just thinking about, I mean, if this is indeed the Trump court, and Trump has been the most controversial, chaotic political actor to show up yeah. since. <laughs> Andrew Jackson, of course. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> Andrew <laughs> Jackson, then what would be more chaotic than the justices that he appointed saying thank you, but no thank right. you. Colorado, you decided to take him off the ballot. And to the Trump voter in Colorado, Maine, maybe some of these other states, um, no Trump for you. No Trump for you. Um, I mean, I just think you're talking about, wow, uh, you may indeed see a genuine insurrection. You sometimes have weird coalitions, people who you think, well— an original intent justice might say, well... Hold on to that. I want to go there on the other side, because I think that's an interesting legal debate to have. Back in a few. 843-661-0937, our number. Someone's on the phone. Let's go there. John in Florence, you are on with Dr. Bolt. Good morning. Dr. Bolton, um, I'm glad you're on this morning. I was listening to Anthony earlier, and he made a statement about Benjamin Netanyahu's brother. Yeah, yeah. Named Yanni, he was killed by a Palestinian. He was not killed by right. a Palestinian. And he was killed by a black Ugandan. Yep. He, it, the raid on Entebbe, and his brother was a national hero of Israel. Mm-hmm. One of um, the only one killed, right? In the raid, he was the only he was Definitely. the only one killed. And also, um, Mr. Ambassador, welcome back um, to your job again, and uh, look forward to hearing more about. Him. Thank you again. Thank you. Appreciate it. Ambassador. Yeah, I, I, spent a, I spent a few days as ambassador uh, to Pauly's Island. And, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, thank you. Thank you. It's good to be back with the peasants and, and common folk. Um, oh, thank you so much. <laughs> yeah, I, well, if you Rev can't say he's a peasant, Josh, you know why? He went down to the beach and spent about 600 bucks on two seafood platters. <laughs> it right? seemed like it. Oh, yeah. man, close. First Gosh. thing out of Rev's mouth this morning was not, hey, man, how you doing? Good to see you. Welcome back. Yeah, it's like, 
Hey, let me tell you what two seafood yeah. platters cost me. <laughs> yeah, I was down in your neck of the woods. I wanted you to know. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, you better get your your checkbook right. As my father said about fixed income, better make sure you got your income fixed. Well, you started like it needs to be talking about inflation and stuff. Well, I, mean, I, said, I got an example for you. It's the example that's going to decide the election. I mean, it's you know, it's the economy stupid, as James Carville yeah. famously well, said. I want to go back to a point you raised before we took our break. Got about sure. five minutes here, and I'd be so interested. There is, there are different sorts of justices. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are those who believe the Constitution is a living, breathing document. There oh, are originalists. Yep. There are textualists. I mean, they're, they're, they're hybrids. Yeah, you know, yeah. they're, they're, they're people who have a lot of different opinions. When they, when the advice and consent process takes place after the president makes a nomination for a Supreme Court justice, and we find out more about their their legal theory. Yep, they're, yep. you know, how they get to a certain place. How do they defend the decisions they've made? Um, some of the conservative justices have a, d- defined or described themselves as originalists and, yep, and textualists. And when you look at the 14th Amendment <laughs> as it was written then, yeah. it, 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 it's, I mean, it, there's some uncertainty there about whether you got to be charged yeah. or convicted of an insurrection. Right, you could almost see sort of someone who you would expect to sort of side with President Trump saying, well, as an originalist, your Gorsuch's, your Kavanaugh's, your, your Comey Barrett's, your Alito's could say, well, based on how I interpret the Constitution, engage, now again, this is a big if, believing you support an insurrection, sure. that would exclude you. Now, at the same time, you an originalist could say, this only applied to ex-Confederates. And so it's 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 off the table at this point. But again, I think it's going to wind up before the court and you might have some weird. There might be some surprising votes in the end. Maybe the Supreme Court says we're just going to wash our hands. We're going to set, we're going to get rid of this guy. The Congress hasn't been able to do it. We're going to put the stake through the heart at the end. And so we're, they may think they're doing the country a favor. Could blow up in their face. Roberts has been all about protecting the legacy of the court, and I'm sure you know he's sweating bullets. This this isn't what he wants. Maybe he finds a way to punt, but I don't think that he. They've got to settle it. But there there is a way to legally theorize that Trump does not have to be charged nor convicted of an insurrection. Right, just if you are if you're a textualist. Yep. And you take the, the now, now, once again, you're kind of contradicting yourself because you're saying, well, Trump's not a member of the Confederacy. Right, exactly. I mean, he, was, he was not a rebel warrior trying That's to overthrow the government. Did they have just that in mind, or were they thinking maybe potential insurrection? Did they have a, did they have a crystal ball down there? But again, then if you have that, and then maybe a broad interpretation of the Constitution, I think most of us would say, you've got to, you've got to be convicted, really, for this to to apply has anybody ever been taken off the ballot so i don't think not in a not in a presidential one i'm sure probably in state sure i'm I'm sure that but yeah yeah, not that i know of uh in a presidential one there's always been sort of this gentleman's agreement that you know you may be an unsavory a lot of weird third party individuals who've got skeletons in their closet but let the voters sort it out why why do you perceive dr bolt that the majority of the power structure (laughs) <laughs> are so passionately opposed <laughs> to Donald Trump. I mean, I tweeted last yeah. week, the week before, last week before, I said to me, and I don't have any idea where others land, but to me, I find it interesting that 99% of those powerful people on the planet oppose Donald Trump <laughs> being elected president. That's kind of every reason for 
if you're not one of the 99 to make sure you go out there and yeah, vote to make sure you go out and vote well, what do you make of that he is the agent of chaos and for how many for generations it's sort of been you could kind of predict where things were going to go this is where you you put your money or these are the horses that you backed and here comes an outsider guy who just doesn't care anything at all about the precedents the norms the rules and official washington they've lit their hair on fire they just they can't pigeonhole they can't nail this guy down and I think they're terrified of what a second Trump turn uh, could mean. And so it, it, it could be open season on a lot of these guys. Last question. What, what do you make of every time the establishment appears to bury him <laughs> with, with some sort of indictment or negative news or a raid on his home at, at Mar-a-Lago? I mean, I saw the numbers this morning. The day his home was raided in Mar-a-Lago was he the day up. he became the most formidable force <laughs> that he's ever been as an American politician. I mean, is there any precedent to the American people supporting someone who seems to be under attack by the political apparatus? I mean, you kind of go back to Andrew Jackson sort of in his rise since he was sort of the outsider. You know, official Washington was was terrified of what Jackson says, you know. And he he was a general in the Army. He just didn't, didn't know how to play the game. And so you see the same thing here. And Jackson was a wealthy man. So very, very wealthy. And Trump's a wealthy man. Exactly. And it, it, Trump and, and, and Jackson both have sort of looked out for the common man. And people called Jackson a traitor to his class because he was more concerned with helping out the farmers, the greasy mechanics, the poor Americans. And the same thing you have with, with President Trump right now. But and we've said it before. I mean, he's like a, the, the, the villain in a 1980s horror movie. You know, just when you think he comes back, you've killed him. A year later, he, they resurrect him, and he's back. And so all these shots they keep taking at him, they're boomeranging. On them. They're, they're hitting them in the face, and they're only making them stronger. So it looked like, right, he was dead a year and a half ago, all these indictments, and now it's there is a clear path to the presidency for President Trump. Last, I mean, do you buy this, that as we sit today, because I looked this morning, there's a 40 I'm not talking about polls. I'm talking about odds. The odds say that Trump has a 40% chance to win, not the primary, but the presidency. Yeah. Biden has a 30% chance, and there's a 30% chance that Biden nor Trump. Well, but, I mean, are you buying that right now? Seems right. Just the way all the winds are blowing. They've been taking all their shots at him, the, his fellow Republicans. Nothing's sticking, right? He's almost going to cruise uh, to the to the nomination. And then it's just, it's, it's a one-on-one. And you, you ask yourself the question, are you better off now than you were four years ago? Most Americans are going to say, no, I'm not. And so have you seen inflation, right? I'm not, my Christmas was, was maybe a little soft. I'm not able to take these family vacations. Things were a lot better under Trump than they are right now. Let's give the guy a second chance. What do we got to lose? We'll explain. Thank you, Dr. Bob. Hey, good week, guys. Thank you. We'll take a break. We'll be back in just a few moments. Takes Tuesdays to make Fridays, 843-661-0937. Three hours in the book, one hour to go. We've done the best we can to get our legs back under us, address some of the issues that I'm sure we got a bit behind on, tried to frame the election going into 2024 because as, um, as you have pointed out it's on now well, i mean it's, made, it's made it's our real. way through the yeah. holidays and- i mean here we are and you've got primary season uh and then you've got the summer so yes i mean we're um you can say this year's presidential the, yeah, election. i was thinking about it last night you know i, I can also say this year I was, my daughter was with me last night i was going like okay you'll be a senior in college this year wow mm-hmm. i don't yike that <laughs> i don't yike that at all um i liked it when she was ponytails and did exactly what I said do and I could hold her hand and lead her through life um not the case 
uh, anymore, for sure. We started out uh, early this morning talking about Kale Yarbrough, local hero, who uh, we lost over the New Year's weekend. And you said you would tell the story. You posted it on your Facebook, and you said you would tell the story on the show this morning. Uh, I want to make sure we don't get but, to the but end I of the show. But I want to ask you this first. Mm-hmm. You moved here when? I moved here in 1985. And became familiar with Kale when? Not long after that, you know, coming from Ohio, I wasn't really aware of NASCAR, Darlington, Big racing. red machine where you were. Uh, that's right. That's right. We had the big red machine, the Cincinnati Reds. Uh, but I was I was not as aware of NASCAR, Darlington, and, and racing. Uh, but, you know, over time, certainly you, you learn to appreciate what the Darlington is all about and what NASCAR is all about. Um, but Kale especially, um, he just becomes an acquaintance, I guess, more or less, because he's always around you. You run into him occasionally. I'd see him at different events, you know, parades. We might be in a parade. He might be in a parade. Or, or uh, I think the last time I uh, I talked to him uh, was during one of the Darlington car hauler parades. We were doing the hosting up on stage, and he was one of the guests of honor that came up there and spoke for a minute. I said hello to him then. But it's just he's one of those guys, and you just the more you know him and the, uh, the more time that passed, the more you appreciate him, not only what he means to the area but to, to the sport of NASCAR. He was my first hero. I mean, and he was my That's hero. That's a good way to put but it. He was, he was from here. I mean, I'm from Pamplico. He was from Timmonsville, Sardis. I mean, he won races. He raced at the Daytona 500. He drove for Junior Johnson to the Wood Brothers. I mean, that was legendary um, stuff to me. My mom was originally from Timmonsville, grew up with Kale. My dad raced cars. I mean, my dad did a lot of dirt track racing, some drag racing. Um, you ready? You ready, Josh, for a good country? Beat around with Kale a little bit, you know, here, there, and yonder. Um, but, but my story on Kale, once again, legitimately the first hero I ever had in my life. Um, I was a big sports fan, but but I didn't know anybody that important or that recognizable or have that notoriety that was from the neighboring town. Or, you know, as you said, you'd bump into him at the store or the, you know, the farm or somewhere else. So, so my dad and Kale had an existing friendship, a pre-existing friendship that went back to them starting in business together. Um, and, and dad had been a, built a successful business and Kale had gone off and, and became a famous race car driver and a NASCAR hall of famer and had a car dealership, the Honda Mazda dealership. Um, so one, one day we were a Holmes wrecker, uh, distributorship. Uh, in other words, there was a company called Holmes wreckers and we mounted, we didn't manufacture the equipment. We mounted it. I mean, they, they came to us and said, Hey, we're looking for installers and we were manufacturers. We said, okay, what is the margin? And once we negotiated a margin, we became a manufacturer. Kale had his dealership, and my dad was kind of a wheeler dealer. I mean, you've heard me talk a lot about him. Kale was kind of a wheeler dealer. And between Holmes Record Company, Kale Yarber, and my dad, they cooked up a deal where Daddy was going to sell Kale Yarber Honda Mazda a Holmes Wrecker for a dollar. And out of that, Holmes got advertising. My father's business got advertising, and Kale was going to take some pictures and do some advertising and marketing, kind of what we do here, advertising and marketing. What's it worth? I don't know. But Holmes and my dad felt it was worth because Kale was a big-time race car driver, having him, you know, in his dealership saying, hey, when when a, when a Honda or Mazda breaks down, they hardly ever do, but when one does, we go get it in a Holmes wrecker. And um, so it was, it was kind of an interesting deal. I was about 15 years old. I mean, I did the math. Yesterday before, the day before, before, I had 14 or 15. Um, 
My dad let me drive before I got my license. I delivered trucks. You hear me, Sonny Collins? I delivered <laughs> trucks to Charleston as a 13-year-old. I've told you these stories. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know I shouldn't have done it, and you'd go to prison for life if you did it today because, you know, we don't like cowboys or outlaws or, or kind of the walking to the beat of your own drum. I mean, condition to conform is kind of the nature of American government today. But, um, but my dad told me one day, and I remember like it was yesterday, Reb, um, he said, take that new wrecker, wash it, and meet me at Kale's dealership. And I'm like, whoa, whoa, talking about the chosen one. I didn't go to Harvard, Yale, but I got to go wash the wrecker and take it to the dealership. So when I get to the dealership, there's a there's a big crowd there, some cameras and a couple of television personalities. Um, I go wash the wrecker. I drive it to the Kale Yarbrough Honda Mazda dealership in Florence. And I pull that mama jamma, if you know, you know. I said it in Facebook. <laughs> I pulled that mama jamma into the parking lot like I owned the joint, and I had it spectacularly cleaned. I mean, it was spotless. The uh, My father was there. I saw him. Kale was there. I saw him. There was some big shot from the record company, and they took pictures, and they did some other interviews and, and whatnot. I still got a postcard of my dad giving Kale the key and Kale giving my dad a dollar. I mean, I've still got a postcard somewhere if I could get my hands on it. So anyway, uh, the popping circumstance of advertising and marketing, I mean, I know I got no business in that. So I'm off on the side. I'm just kind of awestruck of kale, you know, and I'm there and I'm thinking about, I wonder if I can get me a Hardy's hat, you know, or a Holly (laughs) Farms hat or something, something like that. Maybe I can get an autograph or whatnot. Um, Because it was larger than life to me, literally. Um, So we do the popping circumstance of the marketing and advertising and I'll never forget this. Kale turned to my dad and said, Jimmy, let's go to Western Sizzle to get something to eat. Well, I knew that included me. <laughs> I mean, there ain't no way they leaving me out of that. And I knew I just hit the jackpot. So I get in the car with the guy from Holmes, my dad, Kale, and I think there was some other person. And I'm in the back seat. And, I mean, we're going to Western Sizzling. And the next hour was heaven on earth for me. I mean, it, 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 I'll never forget it. I mean, I can see it. I can hear it. I can taste it. I can smell it like it was was yesterday. I mean, there's my race car driving hero, my dad, some other big shot. <laughs> he wants to be a bigger deal than anybody. I'm like, be quiet. Let, let, let him talk. I mean, I don't hear what you got to say about wreckers and, and winches and strength and all that. I don't want to hear anything about that. I want to hear these race stories and whatnot. And, um, and it just, I mean, it, 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 it had a, a, a very permanent effect on me, a very permanent impact on my life. And I, and I remembered it forever. And I got a buddy of mine who married into Kale's family, and he told me about six or eight months ago that Kale wasn't doing good. And I said, what do you mean? And I told him that story. And he said, that's a great story. Hold on to that. That's that's a great story. He actually read the Facebook post I put on yesterday and, and kind of sent me a text. Appreciate that. More interesting was the other stories, that the comments. You know, my dad taught Kale. Uh, I remember being with Kale on the farm, and Kale cut my grass, and you know, he cut our neighbor. I mean, just so many personal stories, and it was very real to me. Um, I understand that the majority of people know Kale Yarborough as a legendary race car driver and NASCAR Hall of Famer, and he deserved every inch and ounce of that. We'll remember him as one of us, kind of a local boy done good. And Kale was, I mean, not because he was one of our favorites, Rev, he was legitimately one of the best race car drivers there's ever been. I mean, we talk Earnhardt, and we talk Petty, and we talk Pearson. You can't talk greatest drivers ever without including Kale Yarborough. And Damity was one of us. 
And when he died, it was a sad day because one of us, NASCAR legend, NASCAR Hall of Famer to a lot of others, but, but the guy who owned the farm down the street. Uh, when, when I built my convenience store, it's <laughs> another good story. When I built my convenience store, my dad had passed away, and I called Kale. And um, he had some building on his property had burnt down, and he lost a lot of his memorabilia. And he started telling me, I called Kale because he owned a bunch of Hardee's at one time. And I was trying to get a Hardee's in that convenience store. Ended up getting a Domino's, but I wanted a Hardee's. And I said, shoot, I'll call Kale. Kale knows more of those people than I do. And he tried to help me. I mean, he genuinely called somewhere in North Carolina and said, I got a buddy of mine. And, and he's just such a, a neighborly kind of person. And, I, and he'll be missed. I mean, he'll, he'll be sorely missed. And that is telling that story reminds me of how impressionable we are as young people and how some of those moments in our lives are just permanent. And you go to your grave with them. And I, I just, I can remember pulling in that. I don't know if I had a license or not, but I remember pulling that record on that dealership lot. And, and I mean, I was nine feet tall and bulletproof, you know, and, uh, and then hearing that, hearing that, you know, Jimmy, let's go get something to eat. Let's go to Western Sizzling to get something. What? What? I mean, it was cloud nine times 10 million. There's another story that Rev enjoys, and I enjoy this as well. For those who know anything about it, know that Kale's claim to fame included a stint as Junior Johnson's driver. Kale's a character. Junior might be a bigger character character than Kale, but they sat around on a um, kind of an old-timers session and told story after story after story. Um, this is one that, that Kale tells about local area, local airstrips, and I think it's very appropriate, Josh, and then we'll take a break. It's about three minutes and 53 seconds, and I think our listeners, I mean, I've told my story. Let's hear Kale tell a story about his car owner and, um, and racing associate, Junior Johnson. Well, let me tell you something about Junior Johnson. <laughs> there, there are pictures that document Junior Johnson running the modifieds on the beach course in Daytona on the old road in the, in the beach course of Junior's modified flipping through one of the corners. Well, Junior is standing outside of the race car on the racetrack and the car's still flipping. That's documented. That's, that, that, that's a fact. I've seen the pictures and I've seen, seen him standing there watching that car still rolling. How he got out of it, nobody ever knows. But Junior and I, Junior called, Junior, Junior called me one afternoon. He says, uh, said, I got a friend that wants you to go down to Charleston with me and, and open up a, a, a parts house he's got down there. And I said, his name was McNeil, Gwen McNeil. And he said, we'll pick you up in, uh, in Timbersville, the little dirt strip there. And uh, at some time of day, we're going down and do the thing, come back. And I said, all right, that'll be fine. So. Junior and McNeil flew in that afternoon. I got an airplane, brand new airplane. I mean, a beautiful twin-engine Piper, and, and uh, went down to the to the uh, opening for the new store down there. Everything went great. Coming back, it was it was dark, and uh, had been raining a little bit. And uh, McNeil lined up. He was an airline pilot, and he lined up for the. Uh, little old strip in Timbersville, you know, I flew it, been flying in, in and out of there since I was 15 years old, and that's where my airplane was, and I knew it like the back of my hand. It was about 3,000 foot grass strip, and McNeil lined up to come in there, and I said, Junior was in the back. 
And I was sitting in the co-pilot seat, and McNeil was flying it. So I said, uh, Mac, I said, you're a little bit high, and you need, to, you need to go around. A little bit too high and a little bit too fast. Oh, no. I got it. Got it made. So he kept on coming. I said, Mac, I said, you're a little bit high and you're a little, little bit too fast. I said, you need to go around. I said, ain't nobody him but us. This is a short place. You don't know it. it, it, won't, it, it it's not embarrassing to go around one time, you know. Oh, no, I'm going to make it. Well, I knew we wasn't going to make it, but I couldn't, <laughs> I couldn't do nothing about it. And came down. We was about halfway down that, down that grass strip. Still running about 150 miles an hour and still 10 feet off the ground. Wasn't no way to get it stopped if he got it on the ground. So he finally, he just planted on the ground. And they had some construction bulldozing and stuff sitting out there. And the plane turned sideways. And we was running 150 miles an hour sideways, headed towards a great big old hangar. And those bulldozing, that bulldozer looked like hotels out there, didn't it? Didn't it? Went, <laughs> went, went by that thing. But finally, the gear broke out from it. The wing folded up on it. And the dust was flying, and it finally stopped. Junior Johnson was standing in the middle of the airstrip before that airplane ever stopped. <laughs> and he was in the back. That's the true story, Bob. And, and, and he, was, he was already out of that airplane, came out of the back, already out of the airplane, standing in the middle of the airstrip before the everything ever quit turning over. <laughs> so I, how he got out of that race car in Daytona and how he got out of that airplane in Timmonsville, I don't know. But <laughs> it, so, Junior, how did you he, get how'd out? How did you do it, Junior? Huh? How'd you do first, it? First at Daytona. <laughs> Kale, was, he was opening the door and getting out and says, Come on, Junior, get out of this thing. Go catch the fire. <laughs> I said, Get over here, Harlan. <laughs> <laughs> That's the truth. You stand right there. 843-661-0937. New year. Old problem, right? I mean, I, I doubt health insurance got cheaper in 2024 than it was in 2023. Good luck if that's um, the case. If you're over, excuse me, if you're under the age of 65, if you're reasonably healthy, if you believe you're paying too much for health insurance, odds are you are. Call Christian Levis at 839-888-3970, 839 839- 888-3970. Uh, if you're internet savvy, well, you don't have to be internet savvy to go to a website, do you? Realchoicehealthcare.com. Realchoicehealthcare.com or 839-888-3970. It's complicated. It doesn't have to be. It's expensive. It doesn't have to be as expensive. I would suggest, strongly encourage you, if you're under the age of 65, reasonably healthy, do what we just um, requested that you do. Save some money. Everybody's into into that. Everybody can't go to um, Merle's Inlet and eat seafood every weekend uh, <laughs> like the Royal Rev mm-hmm. of radio did. Um, I mean, that surprised me. I mean, I, I know it's gotten a lot more expensive to do things, but that even surprised me oh, yeah. at how Crazy. expensive um, some of these things had be uh, had become Anthony was talking about Jeffrey Epstein earlier, and I don't have any idea what the noteworthiness of that is. I don't have any idea how many times Trump's name is going to be on the list, how many times Bill Clinton's name is going to be on the list, um, who else is going to be on the list, uh, the lifestyles of the rich and famous. I would imagine uh, you got princes and you know some others 
Um, you know, did Epstein kill himself or not? Don't have any idea whatsoever. Um, or will that affect change to the presidential campaign or not? Don't have any idea uh, whatsoever. But it is going to be newsworthy. And because it's newsworthy, I felt some of our listeners may have an interest in um, in the story. So we're talking uh, this morning with Fox News Radio's Jeff Manasso. Jeff, good morning. How are you? I'm doing well. Happy New Year. So there are two things I'm sure of. Same to you, sir. There are two things I'm sure of. I don't know whether Epstein killed himself or not, and I'm sure my name isn't on the list <laughs> that everybody's waiting with bated breath to find out. Um, is the list going to be made public, and why, Jeff? Why is this? Why is there so much intrigue with this list? Well, because it's going to potentially lead to a lot of powerful people. Uh, and and uh, so we're talking about 170 names of, of men and women that could be released as early as today, um, linked in some way to, to Jeffrey Epstein, uh, though we don't know details yet. But the New York Post is reporting that Bill Clinton, his name will be mentioned a bunch of times, um, and, and all related to a 2015 civil lawsuit from Epstein accuser Virginia Gouffray. Uh, she's the woman uh, who is often seen in those those pictures circulating uh, of of uh, Prince Andrew uh, and and that blonde woman. That's her, uh, and she she accused Epstein of uh, and his co-conspirator Ghislaine Maxwell of directing her to um, have sex with Prince Andrew and other several prominent men. Uh, of course, Prince Andrew has denied the allegations. He later settled a, 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 a lawsuit that she filed against him. Uh, we're told that the references to Clinton are believed to stem from Gouffray's attempts to compel the former president to testify against Maxwell uh, and, and Epstein in that case. Um, ABC News is reporting that documents are not expected to implicate Clinton in any illegal activity. Clinton has maintained that he was never on Epstein's island, that he ended his relationship with Epstein in 2005 before Epstein was accused of of, of uh, luring underage girls to his home in Palm Beach. Um, you asked why now? Well, documents, uh, unredacted documents are set for release after a Manhattan federal judge ruled they could be unsealed uh, because the case is already settled uh, and for the public public's interest. Uh, names of victims abused as children will not be named. But, um, you know, this this we don't know what we don't know. Obviously it's, it's high intrigue and you know, a lot of powerful people could be named, uh, on this and, and what their roles and relationships were with, with Epstein is going to lead to more questions. And so it's going to be a feeding frenzy. Well explained. Jeff, thank you for your time and happy new year, sir. You do. It's, I mean, I just felt it was kind of a, I mean, obviously it does play into politics. Uh, Anthony said that Trump's name is going to be in there a lot. I didn't hear Manasso say anything to that effect. I don't have any idea. I mean, I don't have any idea um, whose name is going to be on it. I know whose name is not on it. I can assure you of that. Um, that yours truly will not be included in that list of um, infamous and famous people who made their way to uh, to. And it's not funny. I mean, it was a sleazy, sleazy operation. I mean, it's 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 a little bit. Ah, wow. Um, it's kind of a, I guess I can make this political. If you've ever voted for a Clinton in your life and you find it reprehensible that someone could have the gall to vote for Donald Trump, you're a hypocrite, plain and simple. I mean, if you've ever voted 
or a Clinton, and I'm talking about Bill or Hillary, and you try to, uh, what, what, uh, character judgment, morals and ethics and virtue, some of these ingredients we lock in in our leaders, and you say, you know, I couldn't vote for Trump because I find him to be sleazy and I find him to be unethical and immoral and disgusting and all these other things, and you have ever voted for a Clinton, just accept that you are publicly professing your hypocrisy. Let's go to the phone. It's almost there. Neil in Sumter listening to WDXY. Good morning, Neil. Hey, good morning, guys. As usual, I called in about a different topic, but uh, <laughs> a comment on the current one. We've uh, actually been down to St. John, uh, Virgin Islands, a couple times. You fly into St. Thomas and go over to St. John, John on a boat. Uh, we were on a, a boat excursion a couple weeks ago, and I've got busy head syndrome, so I'm asking the guy about, you know, our, our guide about a maritime law and where they're allowed to go and where they're not because we were, we were talking about uh, uh, Richard Branson's island. You know, like, hey, can you go up to it or not? And, and basically he said most of them are pretty nice, but he said Epstein's was weird. Epstein's was weird. They had, they had guys out there in boats, uh, guards, armed stuff. His was on another level. And, and he said now looking back, it made sense because of what they were up to on that island. And that it was, it, was a, it was a whole other level of security going on there. But uh, anyway, what I want to call in about, um, and, and Ken, I've, I've mentioned this to you, uh, I wanted to mention it kind of to your, to your overall viewers. Uh, I have a, a relative who lives up in the Minneapolis, Minnesota area uh, in the education industry, raised by a union dad who worked in flour mills. Uh, we, we struggle to have those common ground political discussions because uh, she, she sees things very much uh, from a more liberal perspective than I do. Uh, I always like to say that we can find some common ground for at least problems, uh, but even there we struggle. Uh, and she told us about two or three weeks ago about a documentary called The Fall of Minneapolis. And she said several times in the conversation that it really made her go, hmm. Um, I would recommend all your viewers take a look at it. It's, it's long. It's an hour and 42 minutes. And of course, it's going to be from the perspective and the point that the documentarian is going to make. So like all those things you find on YouTube, you got to take them with a grain of salt. But it is worth your time. Uh, she shows uncut footage of uh, George Floyd's 2019 arrest uh, and then goes right into the uncut body cam footage of the 2020. Shows a lot of it that, that most of us have never seen. Goes through the autopsy report and a whole lot of stuff. There's just a ton of information uh, about it. And probably the most disturbing part is then uh, where she focuses in on the politicians and the judge, uh, things that weren't allowed into court, the testimony that was given in court that's contradictory to, to what could have been proven if the judge would have allowed it. And this documentary came out in November, and I think it was within two or three days, that Derek Chauvin was, was stabbed in prison 23 times, uh, possibly because of this. So just wanted to throw that out there to your viewers. It's, it's worth it. It's disturbing, but definitely worth um, an hour and 42 minutes of your time. Thank you, Neil. Appreciate that. I watched it. Thank you for the call. Appreciate it. Um, and I, I, I'll, I'll second that motion. I mean, I would encourage you to take an hour and 42 minutes. Um, Neil, Neil gave kind of a, um, uh, a, 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 an appropriate summary, but less matter of fact. Chauvin was jobbed. I mean, Derek Chauvin didn't kill George Floyd. I mean, had they done a thorough and fair investigation, you would have found that, I mean, the, the fix was in. I mean, that Keith Ellison was going to basically hang his hide on the wall. I mean, there was no question about it. Um, 
the, the autopsy basically argues, and you're right. I mean, the documentary is from the person who produces, edits, and is responsible for the documentary. I take it for what it's worth, but you can't misrepresent an autopsy report or, or some of the realities. Um, I mean, they, they, you know, there are going to be inconsistencies in every investigation, but there are so many inconsistencies in the prosecuting of Derek Chauvin as the person responsible for, and forget, you know, standing down and forget, you know, um, allowing the looters and rioters and, um, you know, the thugs to take over some of the precincts and the police station. I mean, Keith Ellison did a political hit job um, in the name of convincing America that Derek Chauvin had killed George Floyd. Um, I mean, there's, watch it. I mean, it's an hour and 42 minutes. And Neil, I think, may have sent me a private message on Twitter or Facebook, one or the other, and I took him up on it. I had some time off this week, uh, uh, early one morning, watched about 50 minutes of it, watched the other uh, part about, yeah, maybe later that day or the next day or whatever. Very compelling. Um, There's some still shots of Floyd with fentanyl in his mouth. Um, There's some medical opinions that he died from, fentanyl overdose. Some of their, There's fluid around the lungs and the lungs are three times as heavy as a normal person's lungs. But, I mean, the um, the body politic in Minneapolis, the the Democrat Party in Minneapolis was motivated by, you know, a white guy killing a black man. And that was the narrative, and they had to find something to suit that narrative. Now, now as it relates to Chauvin getting stabbed in prison, don't have any idea. I mean, I don't have any idea whatsoever. But the autopsy report, once again, I accept the documentarian being biased. I mean, you don't make a documentary about something that you don't believe was fair unless you, you know, c- kind of tell the other side of the story. So I certainly accept and appreciate that that is part of, you know, the the pitching of the, the alternative narrative. But the reality is some of the things that should have been the basis and foundation of investigation were excluded. I mean, they, they were just excluded. We're not going to allow an autopsy report that shows George Floyd had an abundance of fentanyl in his system or other sorts of drugs and some of these other criminal offenses that he was responsible for. In the long, I mean, the long story short is this, guys. I mean, it, it, I'm very comfortable in saying that Derek Chauvin did not kill George Floyd. Derek Chauvin may have used excessive force. I mean, I think there's a fair argument to be made of that. Um, he says he didn't, and, and the, the documentary says he didn't. He was trained to do some of these things. Um, but, I mean, some of that's, you could argue, should the knee have been on the neck? Uh, should the knee have been on the shoulder blade? How long was the knee on the neck? Uh, that's the picture we saw, you know, over and over and over again. Because, once again, you've got a Democrat attorney general. You've got a Democrat prosecutor. You've got Democrat judges. Uh, but they, they want to they wanna hide on the wall. So the media is not going to argue whether he used, I think it's a massive uh, maximum restraint procedures. I mean, there's some way they're trained. I mean, there's some fair debate about Chauvin doing everything right or not, but I'm very comfortable after watching the documentary and saying loudly and proudly that Derek Chauvin didn't kill George Floyd. 843-661-0937, but he's in prison. He's in prison. And there are a couple of other guys in prison because the politicians needed the political narrative to be what the political narrative needed to be. Take a break. Back in a few. 843-661-0937 is our number. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. David in the PD. Good morning. 
yeah, happy 2024. And I was thinking about this. Um, this is a leap year. So, and it's also our election year. So for the Democrats, it's an extra day for them to get votes some form or fashion. So uh, they have an extra day to do that. Again, you talk about Kel Yarborough, man, the great man. I think about Highway 76. I guess the Florence racetrack or whatever is on that road. And he had his car dealership there too. So what a what a great man uh, when I think about that. And I was going to get back to your politics. Uh, the regular season is going to start January 15th. So, again, you guys were talking about exhibitions and this and that. The regular season starts on January 15th in Iowa. And I was going to ask a question for Dave Baker. Uh, what is in a seafood platter these days? It costs <laughs> that much. <laughs> well, there was uh, mine was scallops, and but there was like three of them. Say that again. Yeah, scallops. You ain't had no lobster tails or nothing. No, it was just regular. I mean, it was good. I'll, I'll say. I mean, it was it was excellent, but a little bit of sticker shock. Wow. Okay. Well, uh, I tell you what, Ken. I'm gonna correct you real quick. Now, these people that moved down there to Pauly's Island, Merle's Inlet, they're not transients. Transient really means that they're homeless. Uh, and I can I guarantee you if this Biden economy keeps going with the rent, the insurance, inflation, we're going to all be homeless. Homeless, But I would call them more a transplant because they end up living down there. Uh, but transient means that they're going from one place to another place to another place to another place. So I will give Dave Baker credit. He is the greatest transplant ever. A man moved from there, Skyline, Chile, down here from Cincinnati and from Ohio to South Carolina. Please bring more people like that. But these other people, I don't know about them. But anyway, y'all have a good day. Thank you, David. Appreciate that. <laughs> yep. Time for a little trivia. Am I right, Josh? Okay. You ready? I know it takes Tuesdays to yeah. make yeah. Fridays, it's been a but while. it's trivia um, nonetheless. I want to thank Pepsi of Florence for their sponsorship in 2023. Um, we think they're sponsoring in 2024. Uh, I'm not in sales. I'm not in some of the negotiation to go along with that. Um, but anyway, they've been very loyal to us, and we certainly do appreciate it. Appreciate everybody who made a contribution to the season of giving. I mean, we really, really had um, quite the treat for the six anonymous families that we identified. Um, the correct answer wins a six-pack of Pepsi product. A couple of takes Mondays to make Fridays. T-shirts, courtesy of uh, Pepsi to Florence. Talking about Kale Yarborough. Kale Yarborough tied with Jimmy Johnson for 83 career wins. That's number six all time. Jimmy Johnson, 183. Kale Yarborough, 183. Richard Petty, I think most, I say most, all race fans know that Petty won 200 races. So you got Petty all time winning at 200. You got Kale and Jimmy Johnson tied at 83. Give me one of the four drivers that won more than Kale and Jimmy, but less than Richard Petty. There are four drivers. I need one of the names. NASCAR driver who won less than Petty, but more than Jimmy Johnson. And unfortunately, the late. Kale Yarborough, 843-661-0937 is our number. A little in the weeds 
NASCAR here on a Tuesday morning. Hi, you're on the air. What's your guess? Jeff Gordon. You're right. Jeff Gordon won 93 um, races. Who is this? Where are you calling from? Hey, this is BT in Florence, Ken. All right, BT, sit tight. We'll get you back with Josh. Josh will get all uh, of your information. Petty 1200, Pearson of Spartanburg, South Carolina, 105. Jeff Gordon, 193. Daryl Waltrip, 184. Bobby Allison, 184. Jimmy Johnson of Kelly Yarbrough, 183. Dale Earnhardt, the late Dale Earnhardt, won 176. So um, congratulations to BT, and uh, I guess congratulations to Jeff Gordon. For yeah. winning 93. I think Gordon's now the the president or chief operating officer of Hendrick um, Motorsports. Yeah, he segued from the broadcast booth over to yeah. management. And I think Mr. H made him a better deal than NBC. <laughs> Sounds or like Fox, it. Or Fox made him. And uh, and I get it. I mean, if you if you got racing in your blood, you get a chance to run a big organization like Hendrick or be on television running a big organization like Hendrick is probably a uh, a lot more challenging and uh, and fun. Uh, we touched on college football today uh, a little bit. I tell you, it's in a state of flux. I mean, it really and truly is. But but I'll say this: as much of an SEC homer as I can be, and rest assured, I can be. Michigan looked better in Alabama last night. I mean, it's the first time I've seen a team not named Georgia or Alabama that just looked better. I mean, they just looked like wow, okay. They're controlling the line of scrimmage. They looked uh, as at least as athletic. Um, Alabama had a problem. They didn't believe the quarterback could win the game. That's a big problem in c- such a quarterback-centric sport now. But it looked to me, and Rev knows I watch kind of football in a funky, in-the-weeds <laughs> way, mm-hmm. it looked to me like Saban was never convinced a guy that he had his trigger man could win the game and I think the fourth down, or excuse me, yeah, the fourth down play in overtime was indicative of, you know, let's see if we can just blow them off the ball and ram him behind this big offensive line in some way, somehow, but where do get you, to the end zone. Where do you land on this? I mean, with uh, with Georgia. I mean, should Georgia, Georgia have been in the playoff instead of Alabama? I think you can always say, well, what about this team or that right. team or another team? Do I believe Georgia is one of the four best teams in the country? Yeah, I absolutely do. Um, they have better but they chance lost, of beating they, they lost Michigan. the SEC championship game to Alabama, and that's just the way it goes. 12-team playoff next year. It'll be hard to argue next year that the 13th team in the country, you could argue whether they should be in the playoff or not, but it's going to be hard to argue that the 13th-ranked team is the best team. I mean, if you're including 12 teams, there's a pretty good chance you got the best team in uh, in, in those 12 teams It'll be interesting. The only point I've tried to make, and and I'll be redundant, those who built the current model of college football failed. Control, power, influence, and money was more important to them than the state of the game. And as we move forward, you can't let those people be in charge of the next iteration or the evolution of, uh, of college football it's is it an NFL model that lies ahead? I don't know. I don't have any idea. There's four conferences in football that matter today. You know what they are? The NFC, the AFC, the SEC, and the Big Ten. I mean, those are the only four football conferences that America cares about today. The AFC, the NFC, the SEC, and the Big Ten. And if you ain't part of one of those four, you got trouble coming. Take a uh, excuse me. We'll talk tomorrow.